This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is the other side of midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. You know, I am not, I'm not Jewish, but I'm frequently mistaken for someone that is Jewish, and uh, it's just as well for me. It's fine with me. I'm a big lover of uh, Jewish culture, Jewish comedy, Jewish cinema, uh, Jewish history. And I mean, you talk thousands and thousands of years of Jewish history. You could spend the rest of your life studying the history of the Jews and still not cover everything. So I I never really mind it. I also even like Jewish cuisine, which even a lot of Jewish folks don't like. Uh, You give me uh, some good gefilte fish with some horseradish any day of the week. And I am enjoying myself. Now, when it comes to Jewish wine, that's another matter. We'll put that, we'll save that discussion for another day. But, uh, and my son is technically Jewish, although he's not a practicing Jew. He is, uh, if you go by his lineage and the rules of Judaism, he is technically Jewish, although he doesn't really practice much of anything. He doesn't even formulate speech yet. He does practice spitting up quite a bit. That's really the extent of his practicing. But, I mention this because those of you that are Jewish know that um, if you've ever attended a Passover Seder, or even those of you that aren't Jewish that have attended a Passover Seder, you know that the youngest capable child at that Passover Seder has to answer, or at least, uh, yeah, I think they answer or at least ask the four questions. What is one of the four questions Why is tonight different from all other nights? Well, that is a question that uh, I take great pride in answering tonight or this morning, whatever whatever your perspective happens to be, because we have one of our most uh, popular guests, personal favorite guests on this program. He is a brilliant man who has an incredible voice, a veteran radio and TV broadcaster and an edutainer with a great deal of expertise in astronomy, space and a host of other issues. It gives me a great deal of pleasure to welcome back once again, the one and only Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky. Hello there, Steve. And good morning, Frank. Great to be back for another episode here on Talk Radio 77, WABC. Well, we're honored that uh, you're always so generous with your time and always make yourself available at these at these crazy hours, which even in Arizona, I realize it's uh, it's a little late. You make our show better by your constant uh, where your regular contributions to it. Well, thank you, Steve. uh, Look, the whole world is fixated on this Russia-Ukraine situation, deservedly so. I mean, it's a very a very difficult situation to watch. But I interviewed an astronaut and a naval commander recently, right before this war broke out, and one of the things yes. that we spoke about, one of the things that he brought up, 
is America's partnership with the Russians in the space program. And you have not only the International Space Station, but you have all of these other areas where America partners with Russia when it comes to space travel. Now, now that we're seeing Russia sort of become an international pariah, everybody from uh, McDonald's to FIFA is sort of uh, deleting Russia from their map. Where does that leave us with the space program, and what's the future of America's um, uh, continuing cooperation with Russia on the space program? Well, Frank, I'll answer it this way, and it's always straight up and and full of information here. I think it's interesting. The right stuff are astronauts, men and women, who go to space. And even though the habitation modules on the International Space Station, a lot of it is part of Russia, and a lot of it is part of the United States, and let's say other nations that are on this you know, generous uh, group in space that's working toward peace in space. But what's interesting is I think it really goes back to the Russians again. Dmitry Rogozin, who's the head of Roscosmos, you know, the Russian equivalent of, let's say, NASA, their space agency, he and others for the longest time have been making these ridiculous statements, again, like Putin with the threat of nuclear war. I mean, God help us if that ever came about, of course, a very serious problem. But I think the interesting part of this is, you know, the cosmonauts and the American astronauts and others on board, that's why I say the right stuff, because they're not going to start fistfights on board there. They're too smart for that. They understand that space should be a place that's at least neutral, but unfortunately, down on the ground, there's a lot of hell going on here. So it's kind of interesting. The other day, there were some tweets back and forth. I, I think that some of the Russians took off the American flag off of a couple of Russian joint U.S. ventures in space, the rockets to launch. But I don't know. I'm just hoping that uh, naturally the simple answer is cooler heads need to prevail. That's what we hope for. But uh, the, the truth of the matter is the Russians were saying this. This is what uh, Dmitry Rogozin was saying, that he would theoretically have the ability to recommend that they bring down the space station. Well, there is some truth not to scare people and not to scare the cosmonauts and astronauts. They understand all this. But the Russia is responsible for the propulsion systems on board there. Mm. No, they don't have the ability to run into the Russian module and just seemingly pull these levers. It's a little bit more complicated than that. And, um, and the United States and other nations that are in there, they have, they're responsible for, let's say, the, the heating, the plumbing systems, the computers and such. But I don't know, Frank, it's uh, pretty scary times out there. But I'm, I'm giving credit to the right stuff, and that's what I think astronauts, men and women, are made of. So in the, for the time being, at least in the short term, there's probably no noticeable impact on the American and Russian joint space operations. I don't think so. And like I said, I think that the cooler heads prevail up there. And I think even if there was given a direct order, I mean, it's not a military platform in space. I think things are pretty much calm in the sense that, hey, they know down there about 260 miles below where they're orbiting, some places on the Earth, things are not too tranquil right now. But there could be, as we say in the future, though, I think there's another thing, not to sound alarmist ever here on this show, but always to be truthful. I think the real concern is what happens when, let's say, Russia, if it continues to do this escalation and some of this, you know, jingoistic stuff on the side of wanting to, you know, wipe everybody out on the Earth if we don't think, if they don't agree with them going into uh, the Ukraine. I think the problem is, in my humble opinion, the hacking of satellites, or mm. if Russia were to shoot down, because remember this, we talked about it last time, their ability, as other nations on the Earth, I'm sure the Chinese have it, we have ASAT capability, if they were to fire at, let's say, one of our uh, NRO, National Reconnaissance uh, Office spacecraft, or Defense Intelligence Agency, that would start lots of trouble. 
But there's also been reports, and I can't confirm them, you know, I don't believe everything I read on the Internet, that we've even gotten into some of their satellites to not disable them, but to uh, cause them what we call static. So uh, that's the other problem. Space warfare, I think, sadly, is a uh, an open book at well, this point. I think, and by the way, we're, we're going to be joined by Dr. Sky for the hour. If you have questions about anything related to space, the space program, astronomy, um, aviation, anything of that nature, now's the time, 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-WABC. The phone lines tend to um, get crowded pretty quickly, so I would start dialing now if you're curious about anything, whether we end up covering it or not. I think to your point that space yeah. warfare – that uh, really underscores the importance of what was implemented under the Trump administration of the Space Force. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. And I think there's many purposes for Space Force. Thank goodness President Trump, you know, had this envision, had this dream, and it was then completed, not just from a dream state, but to reality. You know, there's other things. We can have peaceful cooperation in space. We can also do more of cargo ships to space, like future space stations, and have a pathway to space with uh, an organized force as they call it, the Space Force. And also, like we said, let's pray to God that there's no space warfare. But unless people are living in a you know super deep lead mine, myself <laughs> included, I think, yes, this is going to be the next platform. And we've seen some egregious things by many nations around the Earth. Chinese uh, recently, within years, have shot uh, out of space one of their own you know satellites that they wanted to see what would happen, creating a horrible uh, debris field, like in the movie gravity uh, with sandra bullock and the other big actor there but the truth is frank uh, you know this is something that i think uh, is great that we do have a space force and i think it's going to go on to exploration of the moon and remember we're going to see the first female astronauts from america and other nations be the first females to go to the surface of the moon mm. and i think it's also going to be by a tight uh, you know not just nasa but the space force will also be responsible for transporting people back and forth to the moon for serious research and other issues. Now, there's a lot of reasons with all the reasons there are to shake your head in frustration or disgust about oh, what's yeah. happening here on Earth. There's a lot of reasons to be optimistic about the future of space Most travel. Most definitely. And we love to be on that side more so. No doubt about it. Now, um, just going back to this Russia-Ukraine situation, mm -hmm. is it true that the largest aircraft in the world has actually been destroyed in Ukraine as part of this war? What happened? Well, here's the scoop on it to other people that I know around the world, like many of them out there, like many people have friends. What the story is, is this. The largest jet aircraft in the world, a cargo jet that was developed by the Antonov Design Bureau. This is very interesting. In the Ukraine, Antonov has a series of amazing military aircraft for Russia and Ukraine. But the aircraft simply was known as the Antonov 225, and it's known as the Maria. That's the name. So what we found out here, apparently at the airport that's very close to Kiev, that Russian forces came in and started to you know, fire rockets, missiles, and ground forces came in. And supposedly this aircraft was destroyed because it really had no chance to move out. It was under uh, repair because it's such an amazing aircraft. And think about this, folks. The wingspan is 290 feet, so that's what, short about 10 feet of a football field. And it has six incredible jet engines that fire up on this. And if people want to learn more about this, one of my articles at the KTAR.com blog that I have, Dr. Sky, is all the details about this aircraft for aviation fans out there. It's the world's heaviest airplane. It has this ability to lift so much. And it was used for humanitarian reasons around the world, like in Haiti, to supply uh, you know people that are in need, dire need. 
some you know medicines, food, and et cetera, and water. But sadly, I can't absolutely confirm this, and all the sources that I've you know spoken with via email, not by phone, say that the aircraft seems to be destroyed uh, at this point or severely damaged. Mm, no, that is sad. Um, lastly, on the Ukraine front, unless people have questions at 800-848-9222, it was about um, a little more, uh, almost a week and a half ago where our producer, Molly, came to me saying, oh, there's this incredible Ukrainian pilot that shot down six <laughs> Russian planes right. over Kiev. And uh, she said, I'm trying to work on confirming it. And I... It didn't mention it because I was concerned that it may not be true. But since then, since that uh, in interaction that Molly and I had off the air, the legend or the myth of what some people are calling the ghost of Kiev or yes. the panther of Kharkiv or uh, the gray wolf has yes. only grown. Um, let me ask you, based on what we know, available reports and your own independent confirmations of this stuff, is the ghost of Kiev real, this Ukrainian flying ace that can't stop shooting down Russian jets? Well, Frank, I'd love to tell everybody yes, and I'm cheering on for that kind of concept. But I'm thinking, again, checking sources that I know in the aviation world, and this is via email, not uh, going and talking to them. I don't speak fluent Russian or Ukrainian. But we can say this much. If indeed this is not true, it's a great psychological thing for the people of the Ukraine. But what it's all about is about this particular pilot, the ghost of Kiev, who has an actual name, I don't have it in front of me, and the gray wolf, allegedly shot down during the first few days of confrontation six enemy Russian jets, and they go into great detail in talking about what it is. But again, I can't prove this, but some on the Internet are saying that the footage that they show is actually footage from a combat simulation game that many people who are in that gaming world call digital com combat simulation world and that it may not be necessarily true. But it's an interesting story. I'm going to continue to check it out. And I think what we're finding out is, you know, it's amazing if it's true because they need all the help they can get. And, wow, imagine that. Here's one person who's apparently the pilot itself. And I'm trying to see if I can actually find this name here just to give people some research. Apparently, it's a Ukrainian pilot known as Vladimir Abdunov. And allegedly, and I'm just reading this from something that someone sent me over from the Ukraine, he allegedly downed two Su-35s, fairly sophisticated Russian jet fighters, two Su-25s, which, by the way, in case people are not familiar, that's their equivalent of our A-10. And if anybody knows what the A-10 is, and we could go on for hours about it, we do a lot in the aviation world, it's called a titanium tub, the A-10. They should build more of them, in my opinion, because not only does it have this rotary cannon in the front, but it shoots 30-millimeter shells out of that thing. And if you ever stood next to one of these things, some of them have depleted or DU, depleted uranium. These things knock telephone poles out of the ground. And we witnessed by seeing an air show, a special demonstration down at the Barry Goldwater you know, range, mm. a live fire exercise with that aircraft. But the one that the SU, the one SU-25 is kind of their version of that, certainly in my opinion, aviation world, not as capable. They also alleged that he shot down one SU-27, another sophisticated Russian jet fighter, at least on paper. And then one MiG-29, which is common throughout some of the NATO countries, like Poland, is allegedly going to be sending those airplanes over to the Ukrainians, but not letting Polish pilots fly it to violate this no-fly zone. But this is fascinating stuff, if it's true. So the name out there, and I don't have, I don't have a total confirmation, Vladimir Abdunov allegedly shooting down. And the MiG-29 that he has, if people look at it on the Internet, at least the images that we're seeing, 
is the really coolest looking digital camo MiG-29 I've ever seen. That's a cool looking airplane. Yeah, and even the former president, Poroshenko, tweeted a photo uh, that he said was this pilot, which uh, turned out yes. to be inaccurate. It was from two right. years previously or three years previously when a pilot was uh, trying on a helmet. That's the problem with uh, the social media era is that it's easy to get information and it's easy to get information quickly. Unfortunately, we're not always sure how much of it is is accurate. Uh, we're talking with uh, Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky. We'll take all your space questions at 800 848 9222, that's 800-848-WABC. We have three open lines. Steve, before we uh, take calls, you and I, a couple of months ago, I guess, we spoke about the possibility of a comet or an asteroid or a meteor hurtling towards the Earth and ending life on the planet as we know it, just like the dinosaurs had to contend with. And we talked about some of the good disaster movies that depict scenes like that, Meteor and uh, Deep Impact and Armageddon. My wife and I over the weekend saw the the film Don't Look Up with Leonardo DiCaprio, which is uh, nominated for an Oscar, and it deals with some of the same things. I'm curious if you've seen it and if if you had what your impressions of it were. Well, always honest with your listeners, I have this amazing little computer system here, like many people have in their home, that can show these movies. And every time I try to see it, again, I'm paying for this, I'm not hacking it, I have not seen it. But from what I've read, the reviews, at one of the local theaters, we were going to do an actual, you know, student, not student, but a participation where we have a talk back, you know, after the, about the movie. But all I can say is the bottom line, you saw it. If I'm correct, it's that Leonardo DiCaprio is a, you know, early in his career astronomer and with others, and they're kind of dismissing this real threat and not taking it very seriously. Yeah, well, I mean, it's clearly it's a comedy. It's sort of an allegory for science denial. And I I just I thought it was interesting. When you do see it, I'd be curious about your review. I'd be happy to comment. What what are some of the films that you do for those uh, cinematic talkbacks that you do? Well, one of the things we did years ago, a few years ago, not that far back in time, and we still do them, was a series that the History Channel had on Project Blue Book. And mm. amazing, because during my time, and this goes back to our days in New Jersey, we were doing radio at a local you know, college radio station there in Teaneck, New Jersey. It was uh, you know, some, some, kind, some time ago. But one of the movies, one of the things that we had on there, we tried to get the very best guess, and this is just when you're in your college years. So I had the opportunity to talk to J. Allen Hynek, who happens to make a guest appearance, a cameo appearance in Close Encounters of the Third Kind. And why I mention that is all of the research that had gone on about all the different UFO sightings, I thought that History Channel series was absolutely wonderful. I mean, they played out so many of the greatest hits of the cold mm. UFO encounters. And we did that uh, in a large theater. The, the biggest one we did here at one of the, uh, we call them the draft house theaters here. You know, you can eat in the theater and drink adult beverages. It's kind of cool environment. And we put people up on, like some of the actors from these different movies, up on a Zoom screen, like an 80-footer, and we do a talkback. But the most phenomenal one, and I think it's one that I'm sure and hope everybody out there in Radio Land has a chance or had a chance to see, is Kubrick's epic 2001 A Space Odyssey. We had the opportunity to talk to both of the good actors in that movie. But to me, uh, Frank, you know, movies like that, we continue to, to talk about, and obviously here on this radio show, to uh, get the message out about the study of these wonderful subjects. And seriously, I know it sounds a little, you know, different change of venue here, but to take maybe our minds off of some of the craziness that's going on in the world. Absolutely. The chance to enjoy nature and uh, kind of calm down in a way that doesn't really cost you too much of anything other than look outside and uh, try to look up and relax. 
All right. Well, we're going to take a quick break. We'll continue with your calls for Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky, in just a minute. He's going to tell you what you can see in the night sky these days and what you should be looking for. And uh, we'll, we'll have a, a variety of other subjects that we're going to cover in the next uh, in the next hour. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. Straight ahead. WABC. side of midnight we're talking stars sky space you name it with the man who knows it all steve cates aka dr sky uh, you can learn more about what he's observing what he's seeing what he's writing about what he finds interesting by checking out the dr sky blog at ktar.com that's ktar.com we're very lucky uh, to have him as a regular contributor to this program. All right. Uh, I've gone on and on for uh, long enough. I'll give you an opportunity to pick Steve's brain. Uh, let's begin with Bob in Westchester. Hello, Bob. Yeah, hi, Frank. Hi, Bob. Good morning. What, Good morning what's on Bob. your mind, Frank? Uh, I have a question for the doctor. Uh, recently, I was talking to a Chinese student from China who's visiting the United States. And he believes that his people who are going to try to get to the moon first to establish a military base to hold this country hostage. Is that possible? Well, Bob, good morning again. I don't know if it's uh, the reality, but I can tell you this. They have a very aggressive space program, and you have to give them credit technologically. We may not agree with communism. But here on this particular radio show, I'll tell you, Bob, that for any country to soft land a spacecraft on the far side of the moon and do that, nobody's ever done that before. There is, in my opinion, a race, Bob, to go to the moon, at least to do some habitation, you know, build modules like some kind of a place where you can stay other than landing there, collecting rocks and going back. I'm hoping that's not true, but uh, your Chinese person that's, that told you that. There may be some credibility to that, but I'm going to have to research that much more, folks, because all I can tell you is let's hope that's not the case. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. Thanks, Bob. 800-848-WABC. Troy is in Mount Lakes, New Jersey. Hello, Troy. Yeah. Hi, Frank. Dr. Sky. Good morning, Troy. Yes, thanks. Uh, yeah, so, you know, hearing uh, uh, your, your uh, title there, Dr. Sky, reminds me of that old TV show, Sky King and Penny. You know, maybe you should have a sidekick named Penny. That's an idea. Penny. That is really cool, Troy, because on the shows that we do out here, and again, KTAR yeah. is the big news station out here. In that show, I always use the, the promo for that. Out of the Western Sky came Sky King. And yeah. how about this, Bob? Yeah. And how about this, Troy and Frank? 
a person a long time ago heard this on the radio and he gave me, I didn't ask for this, the entire series, some of which have had never been seen, you know, in years of the entire Sky King episode. And I think he was flying. I hope I'm right. I think it was a Cessna 310 plane, but that was filmed out was a, in California, but it was supposed to be about Arizona too. Yeah. <laughs> I thought it was like a twin beach or something like that. Uh, I tell you, I, I should look it up. It was such a cool show that uh, we had to memorialize yeah. it. But thanks for uh, offering up. Well, I do have a plane. question, but I, I yes. do have a question now. Yes, Troy. Okay. So um, I want to ask a question about saddle, uh, how many satellites uh, are there, and are they constantly doing ground uh, imaging? And is there a giant uh, database of, of uh, satellite uh, ground imaging? And could I and is it possible now to access some database somewhere to for a location uh, at a time, a date, and a location, and get uh, satellite imaging from that well, database? Right. Yeah, Troy. Very interesting question. My suggestion is, and I'm not sure. I'm not current on this, but Landsat. If you look it up on the web, I think you'll be able to see archival images. Obviously, our American and other nations' so-called spy satellites are not going to give you that avail. But I'm not sure. I'll have to do some research on this. Like I always say on this radio show, right, Frank? If I'm not mm-hmm. sure, I'm always going to tell you the truth. But Landsat has always been something. I know that people were using that for very, very interesting purposes. Like if they were looking to build homes or large you know, construction projects, they would actually use that satellite imagery to get some better topographical you know, pictures of the ground. So I suggest Landsat. Uh-huh. But the spy satellite Landsat. is very interesting. Landsat. And if you yeah. look at some of the spy satellite images, wouldn't that be great, guys? If you could actually see from space, <laughs> allegedly, you could read what a newspaper, if people still read those, <laughs> or look at a book from the orbital altitude of over, what, 200-so miles in space. That's really cool technology. I want to talk to those guys and gals about the te- technology they're using to optical image and stuff like that. Yeah, no, that's for sure. So we uh, there was a big story about this uh, rogue rocket part. Mm-hmm. that uh, was uh, crashing into the moon, and uh, the, originally it was thought to belong to Elon Musk's SpaceX, right. and then uh, they said, no, 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 it's not from SpaceX, it's from China. China said, no, 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 it's not ours. Uh, now, apparently, the media reported that it's uh, an old rocket part from a lunar mission dating back about eight years ago, and the right. astronomer Bill Gray claimed that it is Chinese, what exactly is this, uh, this, this rogue rocket part? Did it, in fact, crash into the moon? And do we know if it was, in fact, Chinese? Well, they're very good questions, Frank, and I think the best information is always this. Apparently, at 7.25 a.m. on this particular what it was yesterday, I think, that we're talking about mm-hmm. because I'm on different time here, this alleged Chinese rocket body slammed into the moon, creating a 65-foot-in-diameter crater. But I think we're waiting for more, you know, confirmation of this because the best of all the imaging spacecraft, hey, I got to give a plug to Arizona State University here, and they didn't pay me for this one, I can assure you. They have a spacecraft, and everybody should go to their website. Just look up Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter. And Mark Robinson, a person I know over there, he's the director of this. My gosh, they have the most incredible imaging from this thing that's probably the size of maybe a small SUV and even smaller, maybe a little subcompact car. This little spacecraft has been running around and imaging the surface of the moon from an altitude maybe at times of about 20 miles or less. And I think, I don't know for sure, again, I'm always going to tell you folks the truth, 
I think there's, they're either going to get images or they have an image and they think that there's a 65-foot wild crater. Mm. But that's not unusual. Other things have hit the surface of the moon during the Apollo era. One of the Saturn IV booster rockets was intentionally slammed into the moon. A number of these were to test the lunar surface uh, you know, experiment they had on the moon to check the seismology, like lunar, lunar quakes, you know, moon quakes. And recently, we were up, I think I talked about this one in one of the shows with you, Frank. We were up a long time ago on TV here in Phoenix following something called L-Cross. Just look up L-C-R-O-S-S. It was a spacecraft intentionally slammed into one of the South Pole craters on the moon, where allegedly there is water ice. Remember I said the coldest place in the solar system is actually the southern or, or the poles of the moon. And they slammed this body in there. We had telescopes to see if we could see any residual, but no, we couldn't. But apparently some water vapor from that ice on the surface, there was actually water detected on the surface of the moon. So the moon is not uncommon to getting slammed, not only by these spacecraft, but look at the surface of the moon with the craters by much larger bodies Mm. over time. Space junk is getting to be a pretty big problem for everybody now, isn't it? It sure is. And, you know, there's going to be that billiard ball concept that they talk about. It's this effect where when one spacecraft may hit another and another one bounces off another one like billiard balls on a table, but many more on the mega scale, space is becoming, especially in low Earth orbit. And I, you know, we, we talk about SpaceX. I have friends of mine, Frank, and I'm sure that you do that think, oh, SpaceX is awesome. I think they are. Then you have others that say, ah, oh, they're putting up so many of these spacecraft and, you know, it's all for this profit and all these things. But the bottom line is this. There must be something done in space. There needs to be some kind of highway rules and regulations maybe a speed limit, kidding, of course, where you have certain paths where spacecraft can go. But maybe I'm a little too optimistic. If we all can't get along on the ground down here, uh, how, are we, how are we going to do that in the highway and in the heavens? Uh, that, uh, that's a great question, one that I don't have an answer to. 800-848-WABC. Tom is in Carteret. Hello, Tom. Uh, yes, good morning, Frank. Uh, my question is uh, about the microwave technology which has been used to harm uh, diplomats in the United States and Cuba. And I believe you, it also you're talking about the so-called uh, Havana syndrome. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And the extent that weapons are going to be used in war, uh, say, in the future, because I, I believe this nuclear weapons is, you know, very important and everything. But space seems to be the, the way to go as far as if you're really going to destroy something. And, and that's just my opinion. I'm a, I'm a neophyte yeah. at this. But especially the microwave technology, mm-hmm. does that have anything to do with space, or is that on the ground that they're harming uh, all of these people? Well, I'll go from one, one edge to the other of the spectrum here. And, Tom, good morning. Here's my best response on this. I spent a lot of time in the law enforcement world. I know that may shock everybody out there. We could talk about that some other time. But one of the reasons I'm mentioning this there were devices that friends of ours in different companies sold, which were these devices that looked like a large you know, stop sign. And they were basically acoustic weapons that if you've just turned the thing on, you've all heard a white noise. I stood at the other end of a convention center, and this thing was all the way there, and the guy would sweep it across. And as soon as it got toward me, the point of focus, like you'd have like a satellite dish antenna, it just resonated so badly in my head. But going back to space... These type of devices, I think, are already on board a lot of spacecraft. And I don't know this because I'm not privy to any top-secret clearances, but I would imagine, Tom, that this type of technology, acoustic wave technology, and there's also some bizarre theories, Frank, too. This is important, Tom, too, that some people believe, not necessarily me, that a, large, a, lot, of, a lot of the fires that you've seen on the Earth 
were actually produced by superheated microwaves from space as a weapon from space that could actually deploy it on the ground to start fires. But that gets into what? A conspiracy side that I'm really not qualified to go beyond that. I'm just repeating what I've read. And maybe not all of it's accurate. Thank you, Tom. Uh, Steve, we we've talked a little bit about eclipses in the past. Any upcoming solar eclipses that people can look forward to seeing? Well, Frank, I'm glad you mentioned that because it's a little bit sentimental to me and not to spend too much time on it. My first total solar eclipse when living in New Jersey, my father, God rest his soul, drove me down. And this was kind of a surprise thing. I always wanted to see a total solar eclipse. Who wouldn't? So when I was 14. Going back a long time ago, that's 52 years ago, March 7th, 1970, we drove down to Florida. It was a three-day trip along Interstate 95, and I think we stopped at that place called South of the Border in South Carolina, like everybody did. But we got to a place called Perry, Florida, and I was so excited. I had my little camera, you know, one of those little brownie little photograph cameras that you had film in. And guess what? It was it rained, and it rained, and it rained, and it got dark, and it got dark. But I was hooked on this ever since, but... In memorial to my dad and, and that eclipse trip, here we go, Frank, with what's coming up here. And this is interesting. In this year, around the world, we have a partial solar eclipse April 30th, nothing that we'll see in this listening area. May 15th, a total lunar eclipse. We will get to see that. October the 25th, a partial solar eclipse. Again, that one takes place literally over Central Europe and actually over the Ukraine. And then November 7th, a total lunar eclipse. But here we go with the real best stuff for North America. Folks, I'll say this twice because you may want to write it down. On Saturday, October 14th, 2023, Saturday, October 14th, 2023, an annular eclipse of the sun that will take place. What's that? Take a nickel on the table and place a dime next to it. Put the dime on top of the nickel. That outer edge of the the nickel is how much of the sun would shine. So it's not safe to stare at, but like a Johnny Cash song, the ring of fire, that's what you see. And this will take place in parts of the Northwest, Nevada, Utah, Arizona, New Mexico, and Texas. But if I was planting my feet on the ground and could travel, I'd go to Albuquerque, New Mexico, because it literally comes right downtown, and it lasts for about four minutes. But hold on, folks. It gets better, right, Frank? 177 days later, on April the 8th, 2024, April the 8th, 2024, the next in a series of great American total solar eclipses takes place. This is the big one. You'll see it in Texas, Oklahoma, Arkansas, Missouri, Indiana, Ohio, New York State, downtown Buffalo. How about that? Downtown Cleveland and all through New England gets to see four minutes and so in Texas. We're going to be down there, probably in Dealey Plaza. We talked about that, that very sacred location. Right down in the middle of the day, this will happen. But here we go. If you missed that, ready for this, Frank? August 12, 2045, over much of the southwest and central U.S., But I saved the best for last. Here we go. This is way in the future. On May 1st, 2079, New York City gets to see a sunrise total solar eclipse that lasts for two minutes. So what would happen if you stood on top of, let's say, the Empire State Building and obviously had a clear view to the sky as the sun would rise? If the skies were clear, you'd have to pray for that in, what, 2079, you would see the sun rising in totality the strangest thing probably anybody's ever seen, and that one occurs in New York City. Mm. It starts there. Isn't that amazing? I'm marking my calendar. 800-848-WABC. Chris is calling from Silver Springs, Maryland. Hello, Chris. Yeah, just uh, there was a question earlier about getting uh, historical photographs from space. 
If you go to the USGS, uh, US Geological Survey out in Reston, they have a database you can go through. I've been, I've been a little bit disappointed in their website, but okay. you, can, uh, you can get maps, you can get photographs, and they'll say whether it's from a plane or from a satellite. And uh, a lot of people do it just as gifts. For somebody who bought a house, they'll they'll get a picture from like 20 years or earlier, uh, you know, to give to someone. So that, well, Chris, that's a suggestion for that. No, thank you. Morning, Chris, and thank you for the help. We all need that. You bet. Okay. Thank you. Uh, now, uh, 800-848-WABC. I'm going to take one quick break, and then we'll continue with Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky, in just a minute. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. WABC. We are New York on New York's Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. You are the sunshine of my life. That's why I'll always be around You are the apple of my eye Forever you'll stay in my heart I feel like this is the beginning Though I've loved you for one million years if I thought our love was ending, I'd find myself drowning in my own tears. You are the sunshine of my life. That's why I'll always be around. You are the apple of my eye. The great Frank Sinatra, one of the all-time greats. We're talking with one of the all-time greats today, uh, the great Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky, a veteran radio and TV broadcaster and edutainer with expertise in both astronomy and space in general. You can check out the Dr. Sky blog over at KTAR.com. That's KTAR.com. Steve, uh, what can we see in our March skies? Uh, we've had some pretty good weather in our area over the weekend, although there's yep. talk of uh, snow tomorrow, which is going to be interesting. But it's been some clear skies as of uh, as of late. Coming up in the next few weeks, what will people be able to see in our area with the naked eye, with binoculars, with a telescope? Well, Frank, let the fun begin because this is the naked eye part of it, which you don't need the telescope. Let's begin with sightings of the space station, International Space Station. Thursday morning, March the 10th, at 5.03 a.m., early enough, but your show's there. Nearly overhead, moving to the southeastern part of the sky. Now, this is bright. This would be almost as bright as the planet Venus, and it's moving in the direction of the planet Venus. And where would that be? That would be rising into the east. That's the big, brilliant object that you see just before the sunrise. And if you miss that, March 11th, Friday, also bright, just a little shade, a little tad less in brilliance. You're looking at 5.05 a.m., again, looking into the southeast sky. You won't be able to see, you'll be able to see this object with the naked eye near the planet Venus moving in that direction. And this is amazing because you're looking at something that's upwards of about 268 miles above the Earth. But also, in talking about the other things that we can see in the sky, we talk about the moon, Earth's nearest neighbor, 
We find the moon's now a crescent. It's beautiful in the sky, a waxing crescent. So if you have binoculars or telescopes, that shadow relief is there. In my opinion, best on the 10th, because that's first quarter moon, that's when the moon is illuminated. You see half of it illuminated and half of it in the so-called earth shine. But the shadow relief is phenomenal there. The full moon then, the moon waxes, and it continues to move on to the full worm moon on the 18th. And the vernal equinox taking place on the 20th, just what, less than two weeks away. We all need that warmth of the sun. We're getting it a little bit here in Phoenix, but uh, a little too early in my opinion. So in the morning sky, the planet Venus. And also I wanted to mention a couple of spacecraft that are breaking records right now, Frank. This is interesting. A long time ago, in another far-off galaxy, back in 1977, the Voyager 1 was launched out into space. It's still operating. And right now it's 14 billion, yes, 14 billion miles away from the Earth. When the people at the NASA send a signal to it, get a load of this, at the speed of light, it takes 18 hours just to tell the camera to do this or to do that. And that's incredible. Still working after all those years. And then the New Horizons spacecraft, the one with my mentor, Dr. Tom Baugh, the discoverer of Pluto from my days in school, his spacecraft, as I call it, with his ashes on it and other people's names on a wow. CD, that is about 53 astronomical units. And an astronomical unit is the distance of the Earth to the sun. That's about, oh, that's about, oh, my goodness, 4.9 billion miles away. And it takes seven and a half hours just to tell the thing to wake up and do something. So... They're still in communication with these spacecraft. Mm, that is neat. 800-848-WABC. Patricia is in Nanuet. Hello, Patricia. Hello. How are you tonight? We're hanging in there. I am calling to ask, between all of the things that we send up in space and all of the things that we leave there, how much is affecting the climate change? Well, Patricia, good morning to you. It's really not affecting the climate here on this planet. I mean, up and above the atmosphere, when these spacecraft do deorbit, very simply, majority of them burn up, and that's been the track record of most of them. Occasionally, you'll get a sensational news story or a real news story where something comes through the atmosphere and actually hits the ground. But in all due respect, no, it, in my opinion, doesn't have anything to do with climate change because these objects, even though they're in space, they're still not as big as many people think. Even the space station, if we look at it as being bigger than a football field, is still small, by, at least by celestial standards. Thank you, Patricia. In terms of um, what we're seeing in space, one of the uh, things that got a lot of attention, deservedly so, was this James Webb telescope. And uh, we've, been, we've been hearing about some of the images that may be transmitted back from this James Webb telescope. Apparently, it's it's going to explore an exoplanet system. Uh, yes. First, Steve, remind us, if you would, what an exoplanet is. And second, uh, what exactly is the James Webb Telescope doing when it comes to exoplanet exploration? Great question. And here's exoplanet as a definition. It's an extrasolar planetary object discovered around another star. I mean, for the longest time, we all look at our planets, Mercury, Venus, Earth, blah, 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 all the way out to now Neptune and poor little Pluto as a dwarf. But these are discoveries that were made. Back in 1995, the first of the exoplanetary objects, which, by the way, I consider to be one of the most amazing milestones in astronomy because they never photographed these objects. They're done by a complex series of things. When they, when they see an object allegedly go in front of a star, there's a light curve dip, and they can measure this, and it's amazing how they can do it. So this one, 51 Pegasi, was the first one of exoplanets to be discovered. But now with James Webb, 
they've got the calibration going on an obscure star out there with all the 18 you know mirrors they all focused into one that was the test but what they're going to do this is fascinating frank and everybody listening there's a star system about 40 light years away in the constellation of aquarius called the trappist one system and it's named after a special science project They've allegedly, and I say this, have identified seven exoplanetary objects, some of them larger than the Earth, all around this Mm. little tiny red dwarfish type of star, which is only 9% the mass of our sun. But what's interesting is if any of those seven would be in that habitable zone, which they say they are, maybe, just maybe, that might be one of the more amazing locations to look for the possibility of life. I didn't say, you know, alien creatures like reptilians, but maybe some sort of life in an atmosphere-type-like planet. But what's interesting about this, let's now journey in the mind's eye as radios the theater of the mind. If we could go to the Trappist system and let's land on one of those Trappist planets, the night sky, according to reliable sources, would be as bright as the full moon would be at night, but, Frank, you would see, and everybody listening, all the other six planetary objects in the sky at the same time because they're relatively close. That, to me, is very Star Wars-ish, don't a- you think? Absolutely. Absolutely. 800-848-WABC. Al is here in Manhattan. Hello, Al. Good morning, Frank. Uh, I'm happy you have uh, the best guests that you have on out of the many guests that you have. Thank He's, you. Uh, excellent. Thank you, Al. Good morning. Informative and entertaining. You know, yeah, I have several questions, uh, if it's okay, if I may. Uh, is it true that you experience every 45 minutes when you're up in space, like from the space station, a sunrise or sunset? Yes, that's correct. Absolutely. And okay. that would get a little mind-boggling, yeah. don't you think, Al? If we, if every, it goes so fast, because I guess you get used to it if you're up there for six months. That is generally, that is okay. Correct. Another question was this, like, uh, so you were talking about size, how things are actually small. Uh, I've heard it said that uh, when you're looking at a full moon, you could superimpose the United States, like east to west, which is about 2,800 miles, mm-hmm. and that would basically be it. So when you're looking at a moon, yeah. it's basically the size of the United States across. Is that Al, you're, uh, correct? Yeah. You? Al, you're absolutely spot on. The, def- the definition in exactitude is this. I memorized this a long time ago. 2,159 miles is the diameter of the moon. It would be as if you and folks are now Alabama. in New York City. Right. You're in New York City. And on the other side, I'm in Phoenix right now. So I would be literally on the other edge when you're looking at a moon, 2,159 miles thereabouts, you know, give or take a little. We always have a little slack. In there, but you're absolutely one. right. Is it, true that, yeah. is it true Saturn has 82 moons and that some are bigger than Mercury and Pluto? Well, yes, and and you're very you're spot on, my friend. I like you a lot because you ask good questions and you give a nice compliment, too. But more important than any of this stuff. Yes, Saturn has the most amazing satellite, I think, not the largest of all of them. It has Titan. And Titan is one of the satellites in the solar system, the largest one that actually has an atmosphere. See, Ganymede of Jupiter is actually larger than Mercury. So we could look at the fact that Titan is probably larger than Mercury, 82. But you know what, Al? I say there's probably way more satellites than 82 around there. We just haven't detected them all. They said 150, but 82 so far. Listen, you're the best, and I I look forward every month to hearing you. Well, Frank. I wish you could be on more often. (laughs) Frank, let me say this to Al. If there was a prize prize to give, he would get it. Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. Steve, uh, uh, Drudge, the Drudge Report has a link to an article that NASA says it may study sex in space as it's crucial 
to long-term missions, uh, to Mars potentially. And there's a lot of jokes and a lot of talk around the 62-mile high club. Is this something that really requires study? I guess it is. Well, I think it does. And again, I can't confirm this, but talking to so many astronauts, and I'm sure as you've had many on the radio show, I never in and on air ever said to them, hey, put him on the spot. But I'm sure that that whole you know, issue has already been done in space. But that's another story. But I think it's important to study this because it's one of the many, uh, as we call it, five hazards of space. And it goes along with the study that NASA is not you know, actively seeking out you know, Dr. Ruth, like we had back uh, years ago, talking about, you know, therapy for sexual problems or, or concerns. But I think here's something that's interesting. It goes along with this. The basic five concerns about space travel, and they are the space radiation, isolation in space. That's a thing psychologically, because think of it, going to Mars would be about a nine-month journey. Mm. And if we're all cramped into a size of a studio, let's say, or a small SUV or a little bigger than that, like a tractor trailer, I don't know how would it – I love Frank and everybody else does, but – how would we act if we were all together like that? We don't know. Then the distance from the Earth, the whole thing about the, again, going back to this isolation. Gravity fields, what about the effects of gravity on you in space, the long-term effects? They've noticed that astronaut Kelly, the brother of the senator here in Arizona, he had some difficulty coming back. What happens is bones, and they shrink, I guess, as we go into gravity or weightlessness. And then the whole probably, problem excuse me, of closed hostile environments where you're stuck inside of something, let's say it's a radiation-powered spacecraft, you know, we have to come up with this. But the sex thing, I think it's about time, but I think it's already been done, but we're not going to get a confirmation, I don't think, anytime soon. Interesting. Leo is in Manhattan. Leo, hello. Good morning, Frank and Steve. Uh, Good morning. I have a down-to-earth question. Out of the six missions was brought to the Earth about plus-minus 900 pounds of, of material, which I assume is a property of NASA. Yes. Uh, I have a two-part question. One, uh, any of the 12 astronauts was given or uh, allowed to take home a piece of, of moon as a souvenir and put it on the table as a conversation uh, piece? And the second well, part of the question yes. is, uh, was there ever any of the material uh, put for sale to public, some you know, auction for charity or, or something like that? Leo, you asked some great questions. As far as I know, and I've talked to a lot of these astronauts, some that are living and some that are not, and maybe, Frank, you've had them on your show and other people out there. I'm sure I've even met them. I do not know. There are about 800 and some pounds of lunar rocks that were actually collected. That, that's almost like, I think it was 834 pounds, but not the split hairs. But I don't think any of those rocks were ever officially given to astronauts. I know a little microscopic flex or something like that might have been. I don't know that for sure, but I can tell you one thing, both Leo and Frank, there was a big investigation of some people that worked at JPL. I think they were graduate students, and allegedly they had, <clears throat> careful how I say this, stole some of the samples, and guess what? The FBI got involved in that. And, really? Oh, yeah, and wow. look it up, and they're no longer working there touching moon rocks. That is interesting. Um, you know, one story that Molly brought to my attention right before we went on air, and I wanted to run it by you before we run out of time here. Yes, it says that NASA is just now opening a vacuum-sealed sample that it took from the moon 50 years ago. Why did they wait 50 years? What were they hoping to do uh, with keeping this vacuum-sealed sample sealed for half a century? Well, the only answer I can give, and I'm always honest, I don't really know, but the reality is common sense would say – 
maybe they were doing some other kind of experiments on that particular sample in that closed environment in the vacuum itself. In other words, maybe they wanted to see if there was any changes and not contaminating that particular sample to the Earth's environment. But again, Frank, I'm just speculating. Jay is in Cincinnati. Hello, Jay. Hey, good talking to you, Frank and Steve Sky. Hey, good morning uh, there. How are you doing, Jay? Can't complain. Um, you mentioned of gravity. I've, I've found over time it's not my friend. Um. <laughs> Me neither, my friend. And now that's incredible. I say this in my Dr. Sky programs when I do it with, with a lot of children as, edu- as an entertainer, as we say. But a lot of times I'll say, you know, Jupiter is oblate. And they go, what's that mean? And I go, well, it's rounder at the equator, <laughs> just like me. And they get the message when they see me. <laughs> um, but uh, 30 years ago, Dr. Sky, I was a volunteer fireman, and we had a local nudist colony. So they needed a volunteer to inspect the fire equipment, the nudist colony. So I was the first one to raise my hand. <laughs> and I found that gravity is not the friend of men and women. I was completely shocked. Yeah, well, it's true. And well, thank I remember, you, Jay. Very, very profound there, Jay. No, thank I was going to answer Jay on this, uh, Frank, that in, in college I had this book, which is called Gravity, and one of the authors, if not the author, was Dr. Kip Thorne, you know, I believe the uh, Nobel laureate now, talking about gravitational waves, and I went there to Caltech to visit him, and I brought the book, and I'm honest with this audience, my friend. I got a C plus in that in that class in college because who the hell could understand gravity? And I asked him to sign it, and he said, "Why?" And I said, "You know what? I want to use it as a step stool." The book was as <laughs> thick as the New York white pages of the 1970s, and I said I'd use it to have children stand on it so they can get a higher level of education. He laughed and he said, "Maybe you need to take the class again." And I think <laughs> let Let me end with this, uh, if I can, Steve. Before we run out of time here. If you wanted to rocket out of the solar system, whether you're a private space explorer or an entity like NASA, what's the best way to do it? Well, contrary to what most people think, a lot of spacecraft that people have been following, you find out that if if they go to the planet Mars, let's say, they go and shoot it directly. No, no, no. You whip it around the Earth. Some other spacecraft, you send it inward to the solar system, to Venus, and then you sling it around Venus and shoot it out of the solar system. But by far... The most prolific way to do it, and probably not with humans on board, maybe with robots, is to sling it in toward the sun. Mm. Because get a look of this, the Parker Solar Probe, which has just made another one of the many passes to the sun, get a look of this, five million miles away from the sun, it has this incredible carbon, carbon, carbon heat shield on it, and it's still getting imaging. But as it cruised toward the sun, in the gravity of the sun, it would push it out at speeds, I didn't make this up, of over 400,000 miles per hour. Now that's cooking, and it's not even the speed of light, but that's fast. Mm. Steve, uh, the hour has flown by, as it always does when we're together. Thank you for the time this morning. I look forward to our next interaction. Looking forward to it. Have a good morning. Thank you. You can uh, follow the Dr. Sky blog at KTAR.com. It seems as appropriate a time as any to quote that great legendary radio DJ. Casey Kasem in reminding you to keep your feet on the ground and keep reaching for the stars. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano.
everyone. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Well, you know, the old pro wrestling announcer, Jim Ross, actually he's still around, I think, but um, not I think. I know he's still around. Jim Ross used to say when uh, things were getting exciting in a wrestling match or at a wrestling event, he would say, business is about to pick up. Now, he would say it in that uh, tremendous Oklahoma draw. That he only he, the, oh, oh, well, you have that. Okay. I thought that was uh, one of our errors. That's, see, that's, uh, that's right. So business is about to pick up. That is certainly true when it comes to what is going on at the at gas stations all over the place. If you look, any, if you, I'll save you the trouble. You don't have to watch the news today. Because if you watch the news today, the only thing you will see is them doing stories about gas prices. And look, it's bad. It is bad. It is already super expensive to fill your tank. Where now we are closing in on $5 a gallon. We're going to be there in no time. It was already bad going into what happened yesterday. Now, what happened yesterday? President Biden came out and announced a ban on Russian oil and gas imports. Now, this is something a lot lot of people had been urging him to do because that's, you know, a big part of Russia's economy. Russia is one of the largest oil exporting nations in the world. This was President Biden yesterday. Today, I'm announcing the United States is targeting the main artery of Russia's economy. We're banning all imports of Russian oil and gas and energy. That means Russian oil will no longer be acceptable at U.S. ports, and the American people will deal another powerful blow to Putin's war machine. This is a move that has strong bipartisan support in Congress and, I believe, in the country. Americans have rallied support, have rallied to support the Ukrainian people and made it clear we will not be part of subsidizing Putin's war. So I guess you can't argue with that rationale. On Friday, when during the Ask Frank Anything portion of the show, there was one caller that asked me, why hasn't President Biden done this yet? And this is something that Democrats and Republicans alike had called for. And this, make no mistake, is going to cause prices to go up significantly, not just the price of gas, but the price of everything, because everything that you purchase is driven somewhere by a a truck or a car that's run on gas in almost every circumstance. So this leads to a few different questions. And uh, number one is how high? Would the price of gasoline have to be in order for you to change your behavior? Now, in my case, it would have to be pretty high. I drive in every night now. Uh, That's because at the time that I get in here, there's not frequent mass transit. I have, on a good night, I have between a 45-minute and a one-hour drive into work. So I can leave my house at uh, 10 p.m., drive in to Midtown Manhattan and be here by 11, generally. And that's pretty much, unless I'm taping my podcast or something, that's generally my that's my modus operandi. Ah, if I were to choose to take mass transit, it would probably, instead of a 45-minute trip, I, instead of leaving my house at 10 p.m., I'd probably have to leave around 8.15, 8.30, realistically. I'd have to look at the schedules, but... I'm not really willing to leave an hour and a half earlier when I don't really get as much time with my wife and my son that I would like as it is. So 
in my case, I think I don't think I would change my driving behavior until. Look, I mean, if if there's a price where it just was impossible for me to continue driving and I'd have to take mass transit, I guess it's maybe around six dollars. Now, you'd never think that you'd get to that point, but all of a sudden, six dollars a gallon is looking very, very possible. 800-848-WABC, that's the first question that I want to ask you is, what price would gasoline have to be in order for you to change your driving behavior? Now, if I, I like mass transit, I would, if I had mass transit at a more convenient time, I would be taking mass transit regularly. When I came in um, at a, you know in the morning instead of in the evening, I took mass transit. And I loved it. It was great. You could sleep on it. You can uh, read. You can uh, talk on your phone. You can answer emails. It's great. Love the express bus especially. Very, very comfortable. Now, mass transit is probably going to benefit from this because if people have sort of a six of one, half a dozen of the other option to either drive or take mass transit, this may push some people towards mass transit. It's not going to push me there just yet. Additionally. I am curious, we're seeing all these gas stations raise prices. And out on Long Island, we're seeing um, calls for an investigation into whether or not some of these gas stations are engaging in price gouging. Now, obviously, I know the price of oil is going up. And I know that the the price of gasoline is going up, but there are the one county legislator, I believe it was out in Nassau County, that's asking the uh, local government there, the county executive and his appointed officials to launch an investigation into whether or not there's price gouging going on at gas stations. I'm curious if you think. That's the case. 800-848-WABC. I'm also curious about what if what President Biden said, if you find that it's true. Look, obviously nobody wants to pay higher gasoline prices, but I'm curious if you're going to accept that in order to punish Russia and stand with the Ukrainian people. How high gasoline prices are you willing to spend or are you willing to pay if it means helping Ukraine and or I don't even say helping Ukraine, but when it comes to damaging Russia's economy, are you willing to pay higher prices to hurt the Russians and hurt the Russian economy? The other thing that's interesting is, do you remember two years ago, three years ago now, when Venezuela was the international villain du jour? Well, now the U.S. is crawling back to Venezuela, figuratively, and begging them for oil. So Russia has had a pretty good relationship with Venezuela. Russia sends them their wheat. And uh, now you have a situation where, according to um, a a gentleman on Twitter named Alex Rubenstein, who is an investigative, an independent investigative journalist, he's, he tweeted, and I can't verify this, 
Um, but U.S. officials, make no mistake, U.S. officials have traveled to Venezuela. Uh, Jen Psaki addressed that in her address to the press on March 7th. After years of sanctions, the U.S. is crawling back to Venezuela to beg for forgiveness and oil. What Alex Rubenstein writes, when I visited Venezuela, a government-sponsored bakery told me Russia sent them their wheat. Russia fed Venezuela while the U.S. tried to starve it. This plea will fail. I am curious, one, what you think of this strategy in order to keep us from getting to the point of $6 a gallon gasoline is should we be doing what Biden is doing and being willing to buy oil from Venezuela now? Because remember, we're only importing about 7% of our oil from Russia. But it was President Trump that went to Russia and the Saudis, or and OPEC, which is the Saudis play a big role in OPEC, and asked them to start pumping more so that the U.S. could buy more from them to replace the oil that we were no longer buying from Venezuela. So I, I do want you to keep this in mind, and I'm going to get into this a little bit at 3.30 um, when we talk about this war in Ukraine. When you sanction a country, it hurts the people in that country. And very rarely does it do anything to get that country to change its behavior. Tell you what it does do, it ticks people off. And I do wonder if Venezuela is too ticked off now to be willing to sell us their oil. And you remember, just to go back to the sanction issue for a second, one of the reasons that bin Laden cited as to why he attacked us on September 11th was because of the American sanctions on Iraq, which killed Iraqi children. So um, I'm interested to see how this whole thing plays out. And uh, I'm interested to see one thing that I wish more local elected officials would be talking about, including Democrats, which I know this isn't always their thing. New York has some pretty high gasoline taxes. Don't you think now when people are hurting? See, high gas prices, and John Katsimatidis has pointed this out because he's in the oil and gas business. Uh, Did a great job talking to Maria Bartiromo about this on Fox Business this week. But if you're making... $100,000 a year. That price of gasoline hitting $5, it hurts you a lot less than it hurts the guy that's making $50,000. So it's basically a regressive tax. The higher, because you don't pay for a a gallon of gasoline as a percentage of your income, you pay a flat fee, which means the lower your income, the higher percentage of your income you're paying in gasoline taxes. So this high gas price, it hurts the working class and the poor more than anybody. More than anybody. So I do wonder, look, there's nothing that New York or New Jersey or Connecticut can do about the uh, oil speculation. There's nothing we can do about the international price of gasoline. But New York has some pretty high gasoline taxes. So does Jersey now. Isn't it time, at least temporarily, and I know this might be a little bit of a a financial hit, isn't it time, at least temporarily, 
to roll back some of these gas taxes? Because as I understand it, the gasoline tax in New York, for instance, is based on a percentage of the whole of the total price. So the higher that price of gasoline goes in New York, the higher the tax goes as well. So it's not as if you pay a you, now. There's a federal gas tax as well, which we could talk about whether or now now's the time to look at a federal gas tax holiday. I think it is, but it, it, it's not as if in New York you pay a tax on gasoline unless they change this. But I don't think they did. It's not as if in New York you pay a tax on gasoline of ten cents a gallon. You pay a percentage of the total price per gallon. So if that price ticks up to four dollars the percentage that you're paying in taxes ticks up as well does that make sense make sense so those are the questions that i want you to tackle tackle them in any direction you want one as president biden one let's start with did the president do the right thing in terms of banning oil imports from russia that's number one number two is the president right are you willing to pay higher taxes to hurt the russian economy number three Is the administration right to go beg for Venezuelan oil? Number four, do you think there's any chance in hell that the Venezuelans, after being crippled by American sanctions these last few years, do you think there's any chance at all that they're going to be selling us oil again? I don't think so. I don't think so. Four, what do you think of my plan? It's not exactly a revolutionary plan that states and localities should look at a temporary gas tax holiday because uh, the very people that are hurt by this the most are people that can afford to pay it the least. And then the question I'm most curious about is what price would gasoline have to be in order for you to change your driving behavior? If you drive regularly, maybe take mass transit instead. 800-848-WABC. All right. Let us begin with um, Chris in South Jersey. Hello, Chris. Well, I'm going to be brief, okay? Um, The only solution that I see is electric cars. Mm. That's it. All right. Well, do you have a Tesla? Um, I'm going to buy one. I traded in my my other car, and I'm buying a Tesla. Um, I'm in the process of it. You know, if, uh, I, I refuse to pay four dollars a gallon. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and and before we know it, it's going to be five dollars a gallon. Thanks, Chris. Uh, Chris was on a weird, weird speakerphone there. But um, I really, what, what, during Hurricane Sandy, when we people, when I had to wait in line something like two hours just to fill up and get my gasoline because there was no power anywhere, I said that my next car was going to be a hybrid. Because I said, I don't want to deal with this again, sitting in um, in two hours of a line to get gasoline. Now, it was not a hybrid. I've had two cars since then. Neither of them has been a, a, a hybrid. It's a gas-efficient vehicle. But I, I hear that. Look, it's not as if when you're talking about electric cars instead of gasoline-powered cars that that energy is free. It's not. The, that, the price of electricity is married to the price of other types of energy, including gasoline and oil, because the electricity comes from somewhere. So, look, obviously you're not going to be 
filling up at your gas tank, at, at your local gas station at $5 a gallon. But that electricity will get costly as well. 800-848-9222. Mary Beth is on Long Island. Hello, Mary Beth. Hi, Frank. I hope you're well. Thank you. Um, this whole situation, you know, we go from being controlled by the government during COVID. Now COVID supposedly doesn't exist anymore, and we're being controlled again by the gas situation. Um, I, I simply cannot imagine with the lack of mass transit here on Long Island, how people could cope without their cars. And, you know, that gentleman who called in and said, you know, he was getting ready to buy an electric car, good for him. How many people have the money to be able to do that? And as you said, the price of electricity goes up then. Um, I agree with you that the states and the federal government should start rolling back the taxes And as to your question about, you know, punishing the Russians, you know, how high are we willing to pay for gasoline to do that? We're actually punishing ourselves much more, I think. So the whole situation, it's control. It's the government controlling us. And I think people have had it. Well, uh, thank you, Mary Beth. Appreciate it. 800-848-WABC. It's very interesting. Um, the the program on the Fox News channel, Jesse Waters, did a series of man-on-the-street interviews, and they would throw questions out there to different people. And, I mean, they must have talked with a dozen, maybe two dozen people, getting their their take on what Biden was doing and asking for solutions. And there's one young man that they spoke to on this Fox News channel piece on uh, Jesse Waters' show yesterday, and we we combined, because he was only on for, you know, two seconds, but we combined the two clips of him, and the first, it's basically gas-causing pollution, and the second was, um, what do you do, what would you do about this? And you have a lot of people saying, oh, uh, you know, I'd uh, drill more, or do this, or do that. This is what this young man that was featured on the Fox News channel on Jesse Waters said. Pretty accepted that we all pollute as part of our lives. More stimulus money, please. So that we combined the two snippets that they used. But the first thing he says was, it's all it's um, it's uh, pretty accepted that we all pollute. It's part of our lives. And the second was when asked the question, what should we do about affording gasoline? More stimulus money, please. Now, uh, let me hear that one more time pretty accepted that we all pollute as part of our lives. More stimulus money, please. Now, if I was reading from a transcript uh, without seeing the people there or hearing the people that were on that show, I could have told you exactly who that person was. And sure enough, I would have been correct. That person on Jesse Waters last night was actually my brother Nicholas. Uh, Nicholas Carmine Morano. Um, he is my younger brother, happens to be a doctor, a scientist. He's a, a PhD and he's a Marxist. And of course, if there's anything that that defines Nicholas more than anything, it's wanting more money for free, more stimulus money. Now, I don't think that is a sound financial um, approach at all or a sound economic approach. I fear it would actually be 
far more inflationary, and it would encourage more people not to work, only exacerbating the supply chain issue. And Nicholas knows all that, too. He's a bright guy uh, with multiple postgraduate degrees, which beat the zero postgraduate degrees that I have. But when it comes to Nick, he's not thinking about broader economic policy. He's thinking about himself, and he wants another one of those $1,000 checks from the government. So I was happy to see him on the Fox News channel, although I disagree with his solution. And I'm I'm sure knowing Nick and how verbose he is, he probably gave a lengthy commentary, and then they just kind of cherry-picked those two aspects of it. But uh, it was interesting to see my brother Nick on uh, the Jesse Waters show yesterday. 800-848-WABC. Joe is in Ron Konkama. Hello, Joe. Hey, Frank, uh, how you doing tonight? Um, I'd like to think I'm doing pretty well. Um, I agree with Mary Beth 100%. I don't agree with the guy with the electric car buying one. They're going to eighty to $100,000. I don't have that money. I know you don't. And um, I drive for a living. I use my own vehicle. I work. I've, I've told you over and over again, I have a landscaping side business. It's going to be affected. I mean, no one, I have to raise people's prices. And I told my wife, you know, it's either or. I'm not going to be caving to people because uh, I'm not making any money. And being out here every night, seven days a week, and I get to put my own money into my gas tank. Uh, I, you know, I get to write it off at the end of the year, but the government only allows you to take up to 55 cents, 50 cents, you know, uh, a mile. So, you know, that was back you know, years, years ago, now it should be, they didn't even elevate that tax time, you know, um, when you're filing the taxes. It's just, it's taking advantage. Of, well, like sheep, Frank, uh, with the COVID thing, they let us, and now they're leading us down. Just Joe Biden's got to open the pipeline and make it energy efficient and, you know, and just end this. Well, thank you, Joe. Look, the bottom line is there's no easy solutions. There's none. You could drill more. You can explore more alternatives and no easy solutions. I am curious what that magic number is for you. At what point does gasoline get so expensive that you have to change your behavior on a daily basis? That your behavior, your daily routine of how you travel or what you do, you have to change it because you just can't afford to fill your tank anymore. What's that number for you? Or is is there any number? 800-848-WABC. Mark's in Westchester. Hello, Mark. Yes, sir, Frank. My magic number, if I was a normal driver, would be about five fifty a gallon. I would start to recuse myself from driving my vehicle. The conundrum I am in is that I drive a hundred miles a night as a security supervisor. Well, uh, to and your I point, Mark. L- l- let me just interject one second, and then I'll let you make your point unabridged. I was listening to. Your friend Curtis and uh, Anthony Weiner on Saturday, and Anthony Weiner said basically, "Well, look, if we don't want to be dependent on Middle Eastern oil and Russian oil, all people have to do is stop using so much petroleum." Now, that's easier said than done. I mean, it's easy to do if you live in Manhattan and you could take the train everywhere. But if in you, if you're in your position or in my position, you can't just make the choice to stop driving everywhere. You have to kind of deal with it. You are correct, Frank, and I'm working the overnight. So taking the subway from the, well, the ferry from Staten Island to Brooklyn to Queens to the Bronx and then back again would be probably a, my own death warrant. <laughs> um, 
so I have to pay that that gallon, but at at five fifty, I I might start working in the office. Yeah, well, it uh, uh, would certainly be uh, be a, a. I think that's a price, unfortunately, that we're a stone's throw from. We'll continue with your calls in a minute. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. This is the other side of midnight. Straight ahead. WABC. 77 WABC Radio News, New York's news leader, Deborah Valentine. Every major crime category in New York City. Bob Brown. As long lines continue in most testing facilities. Jacqueline Carl. Surging cases of COVID-19. Frank Diaz. Children have not been the driving force behind COVID surges. Lydia Serrani. Regarding the nursing home crisis. And the news never stops. I'm Deborah Valentine. I'm Bob Brown. I'm Jacqueline Carl. I'm Frank Diaz. I'm Lydia Serrani. At WABCRadio.com. Talk Radio 77 WABC. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. 77 WABC. We are going to discuss the Ukraine situation an hour from now. And um, I, I was, you know, it's such an easy talk topic that I don't like to do the easy talk topics. I like to do the, the tough talk topics that cause you to strain your brain a little bit. Um, but the names of Woodrow Wilson and Christopher Columbus have been removed from more New Jersey schools. I'll tell you a little bit about that. And uh, we're going to talk with David Sinclair, who runs a uh, a, cellul- a cell phone company. We're going to talk about how big tech might be spying on you. And he also has spent a lot of years working and living in Russia. And we'll talk about the Ukraine situation as well. But for now, the big news yesterday is that President Biden is banning Russian oil imports into this country. Right decision, wrong decision. How high would the price of gas have to be for you to change your driving behavior? Is President Biden right when he says Americans are willing to spend more in order to hurt the Russian economy? The United States strategy here appears to be beg Venezuela, beg Saudi Arabia to sell us oil. You think Venezuela is going to do this? 800-848-WABC and um, the one area that I think is a no-brainer, I think localities, states, and municipalities should be offering people a temporary gas tax holiday. And I realize that that not only hurts the local governments a little bit, but, you know, that it encourages people potentially to drive more, which is not necessarily what we want to do. But the bottom line is the people that are being hurt by this are really the poor and folks that don't have a lot of alternative transportation options. Or do you agree with my brother Nick that now the solution to this is more stimulus money? 
as told uh, to Fox News yesterday. 800-848-WABC. All right, we have uh, the East Village on the board, Central New Jersey, Massachusetts, Virginia, Brooklyn, Newark, and West Virginia. All right, we have a lot of states on the board. Well, look, there's only one place that's the top of the food chain, and that's Brooklyn. Corey's in Brooklyn. Hello, Corey. Yes, sir. Brooklyn. How are you? Um, so I was in the, I was in Pennsylvania today, and uh, they're not exactly very low on taxes, but I happened to get off at a station right off the highway, and when I went to get the ninety three gas. I almost fell over because it was five oh five a gallon. Oh, I'm not surprised. And yeah, and I then as I was driving back to to Brooklyn, I was listening to uh, uh, Cats at Night, that the Capo de Tutti Capos uh, show, Cats Roundtable. Yes, I'm night. familiar with it. Yes, I listen every day. Right, and so he 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 explained the whole thing. It's about a hundred ten dollars, and within about sixty days, that's going to hit us. That's we're going to have six dollars. Well, uh, Corey, do you think that all of the price that you paid today—that five oh five—was just the result of standard market forces, or do you think there's some price gouging going on? There was definitely price gouging where I was at. Um. And also the taxes idea, I think we should they should be giving us a little bit of a break. The feds, the states, I definitely think. And also the diesel is now more expensive again than the premium gasoline. Which if you remember back a year and a half ago, diesel was less than premium. Oh yeah. So uh- we're not only hurting the Everybody, we're hurting the people who are delivering us everything. No, no, so, no doubt about it, Corey. Drivers. No door, no doubt about it. Eight hundred eight four eight WABC. It looks like we have Charlie Finch on the line. Hello there, Charlie. Hi, Frank. Remember when former Representative Joseph Kennedy of Massachusetts, Robert Kennedy's <laughs> son, used to do those TV spots where he said, if you're poor and you need heating oil and yeah. you want a discount. Yep. The people of Venezuela there, are there for stuff you. Came, all that oil came from Hugo Chavez's administration, the communists in Venezuela. This is the classic liberal Democrat, and I'm a liberal Democrat and a Trump supporter, a JFK Democrat, as you well know. Playbook. They don't care if it benefits you. They have an agenda that they want to follow. They're going to have no trouble buying oil from the communists in Venezuela, Frank. The Rockefellers developed those oil fields. They are the highest uh, form of crude in the world, right? It will have absolutely no effect on prices, in my view, Frank. And it will establish the fact that they want to cozy up to Venezuela and they have a whole agenda. They don't give a damn about Russia. All they give a damn about is climate change, their stupid policies, using inflation to basically balance the budget, and basically taking it off the backs of us deplorables, right? If they want to go Jimmy Carter and fail, they don't care. Okay? Great show. Keep it going. Thanks, call. Charlie. It's great to hear from you. We miss hearing from you. Thank you. 800 Pamela is in central New Jersey. Hello, Pamela. 
Yeah, um, I agree. This is total manipulation. Uh, they're using the Russia thing. The Russia is a byproduct. The Ukraine thing is a byproduct of our manipulation of our in our country. We've been locked down for over two years. Spring is coming. We want to get out and about, and now they're going to keep us locked down again and forcing us. Uh, and there's no way we can afford electrical. Like you said, electrical cars use fossil fuels to run them. The grid is run partially on fossil fuels to a great extent. So that guy who called in saying, I'm buying, you got some ringers calling in working for companies, electric companies. You can almost tell when they're calling in, promoting. Like yeah. the other day on one of uh, one of the stations, WABC, one of the talk shows, a guy called in and said, oh, you baby boomers will be dead pretty soon. So you got to get with the program. We got to go renewable. Then he said, oh, I'm a professor and I work for renewables. So you got to watch out for the ringers calling in. And this is manipulation. We want to get out and about. They don't want people leaving the blue states. So even if you want to move, it's going to cost you what used to be $5,000 to move across country. It's going to cost you twenty grand. So don't buy into it. Uh, uh, call your, your house. It's working. People are calling the uh, representatives. And they're starting to move a little bit. Uh, not enough in my book. But call your representatives and say, we're not taking this anymore. We are not putting up with this. Well, so, Pamela, let's say let's say you call your representative and you say um, uh, we're not taking this anymore. What does that look like in practice? What should let's say you call your congressman, the congressman gets on the phone with you and says, all right, what should I do? What do you want me to do? What would you tell him? Well, a lot of the offices are very nice. Some of them are a little not so nice. You're, you're right about you that. Say, I've experienced that same thing. You're right about that. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Some of them say, oh, I see your area code. You're not in my, you're not my constituent. I said, you know what? I'm a citizen in the United States. Yeah, of America, I, I pay I your to... salary. I see your paycheck. I pay your salary as a taxpayer. Absolutely. And, you know, um, you all represent, you're supposed to represent the whole country. And I can only call certain ones because at times because you know uh you know uh, they're going to be user friendly you know some of them will just like give you the business and and their agenda is the marxist agenda to just uh, promote certain things but you got to call like the other the other day i said one third of the republicans are pulling the weight of the whole republican party one third are in their box and um just scared to move and one third are rhinos So, you know, they're the ones who are going to have to change. And I I tell them, this is what I tell them. I said, you know what, me and my friends, and I have ties to to the South and and the Northeast, we're not giving you any money. We're not giving you any money for any election until you do what we want. And I'm not, I don't know about you, but I've been locked down for two years, and I'm not going to be locked down for the rest of my life with with this manipulation. And I am not buying an electric car. The combustible engine is here to stay for a while because our grid system is 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 garbage and it has to be uh, it's going to take time. And I, I don't want to freeze to death. You see what happened in Texas? You know, I've been in the south with heat pumps. They don't work. You know, you need backup systems when it gets really, really cold. You know what? You, it's not going to work. Fossil fuels. And listen, I love the earth. I love animals. I'm a, a big on recycling. But um, pipelines are the safest things right now. And um, I'm not too thrilled well, with nuclear, but. Well, Pamela, but, thank you. I just want to give a few other people an opportunity to speak. I, I think there's no reason we can't continue to encourage renewable energy production. 
But it's not as if, like, just as I said yesterday, if um, if you put an oil rig in the ground today, do you know when that rig will be producing petroleum? Six months. So that's with an infrastructure that's already existing. If you flick a switch and says, oh, all right, we're all going to be renewable now. Wind, sun, solar, uh, oh, solar is sun. Wind, solar, biomass. It's not as if you flick a switch and say, okay, we're done with petroleum. It takes years, years to drish, tradition to, uh, to transition to a renewable energy economy. Years, years. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't go down that road, but I, it's not going to do anything to help alleviate gas prices now, next week, next month, six months from now, a year from now. 800-848-WABC. Harry is here in New York City. Hello, Harry. Hey, Frankie, what's going on, man? Uh, listen, just real quick, I love your show, man. Thanks. I'm going to keep it short. Um, as far as electric vehicles, yeah, it, it, it seems like it might be beneficial for the time being. It takes a lot to extract that lithium out of the earth and to create those batteries that run in these electric vehicles. That's number one to begin with. Number two, I'm a big car guy. You can't take that the, the, the traditional engine away from me, right? I got a V8 twin turbo. And I'm still going to be, I'm still going to run my car the way I do, regardless of what happens, right? If anything, it'll be worth more money 10 years down the line, you know, when, uh, when, uh, when gas engines aren't really available anymore. But, I, you know, they're, they're, everyone's trying to push for this agenda. And my whole thing is, like, why is it only the United States that's really, like, trying so hard for this Green New Deal and, like, going electric and, you know, trying for all these things? When, all, when you have China and India and Russia that doesn't care at all about, about about uh, the pollution and the atmosphere and like you know they're racking up all their uh, carbon dioxide and all this pollution into the air. Like, why are we the only one that's really trying to do anything about it? Yeah. Uh, well, look, I can't answer that one, Harry. Thank you for the call. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Look, we're not going to solve this problem today, but I am just curious, just in general, what's your magic number? At what point does your routine change? You know, maybe for some of you, it's easier than others. Mike is in Pennsylvania. Hello, Mike. Yes, Frank. I uh, want to tell you, there's a congressman in Pennsylvania, Matt Cartwright. And on Facebook today, he put a a post of a picture of a post office and how he's going to change the post problems in Pennsylvania. The last thing we have to deal with is postal problems. The post not getting to our mailbox. You know, people don't have street addresses, some of them. They live in rural areas, and they rent a box. So they have to drive to the post office. They still get their mail. That's not important. How about these guys? And I looked down the line of people that were under that post. He didn't get one positive review. Interesting. These guys, not one positive review. Out of hundreds of people, I mean, everybody, and this guy, I even sent him a personal message about another issue to his Washington, D.C. office. Never called me back. Nobody in his staff ever called me and gave me an alternate number in Pennsylvania. Uh, He's never going to get elected. He's just one of these. All right. Well, again, I haven't followed that individual race, so I don't want to. I mean, there's 435 congressional races that are on the ballot this year. I don't care to delve into all 535 of them, let alone that specific congressman who I have to be honest, I've never heard of. 
But uh, it is what it is. Hey, uh, we'll continue with your calls and uh, cover a bunch of other ground. Uh, Still to come, we are going to talk about the Ukraine situation with David Hendrickson. He's a professor of political science at Colorado College, author of eight books, including many about foreign policy. He had a fascinating piece in the national interest about what we can really do to help Ukraine. And uh, it's not what we're doing. We'll get into that and a whole lot more. David Sinclair is going to be here as well. we got the Davids coming up. He's the founder and CEO of Volta Wireless. We'll talk about how to communicate with people in Eastern Europe right now and what the government has done to partner with big tech to spy on you. We'll get into that as well as your uh, your calls and a bunch of other stuff that I have on my agenda. You can uh, you can watch us at wabcradio.tv. That's wabcradio.tv. If you tune in uh, to, to our live stream, you will see that I'm actually wearing the same shirt that I was yesterday. I make no apologies for that. I like this shirt. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. Straight ahead. WABC. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano, 77 WABC. You're listening to The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Some of you might even be watching the program at WABCRadio.tv. I don't usually like to promote the video stream because, you know, I, I encourage, I like theater of the mind. I like for you to picture images that we paint with um, sounds. But there's one thing I have to show you, so I'm making an exception. Go to WABCRadio.tv. So when I broke my James Garfield mug... Um, one of our great listeners, Ellen, sent me four, count them, four presidential mugs, uh, two Garfield and two Theodore Roosevelt. And today, I, I've been using this Theodore Roosevelt mug and I like it. Today, I was running around because I'm always running so quickly and I'm swinging it. I, I'm very, very, um, you know, mo- I have a lot of motion. I'm not sure what the proper adjective there is. It escapes me. But. I guess I was swinging my hands, unlike uh, Raquel Welch and uh, Elaine on Seinfeld. And I slammed my Teddy Roosevelt mug, as you could see, into the wall. And it broke. Now, I still have... See, it's broken. So, hold it up to the microphone for those of you listening on radio so you can see it as well. So, I st- I'm throwing this one away. I'm not going to try to glue it. It's gone. Um, and it was actually damaged much more significantly than the Garfield mug that I broke, which I did save, which was a gift from Margot Katsimatidis, our first lady, who it was great to hear on the Bernie and Sid show yesterday. Um, you know, it's funny. I spoke to Sid right before that he was going to do that interview. And I said, please tell Margot I said hello. Because I like Margot and she's been very good to me. And I don't think Sid told her hello. I didn't hear him say hello in that interview. And I'm not sure he said it off there either. So I'm starting to wonder if Sid is one of these guys 
that says he's going to say hello to people for you and then never does. Well, if Margot's listening now. Well, what are you asking me for? Hello. Uh, but thankfully, I have this backup Theodore Roosevelt mug, which I'm now drinking from. Thank you, Ellen. I didn't think I would ever need four presidential mugs in the same location. Turns out, at the rate that I'm breaking them, I do. I do. Um, I'm not sure. What, what, what just fell? What is that? You know, there are two high heel shoes here. Did you know that? Look at there. Whose shoes could these be? They're from Nine West. Look, they're, um, I can't tell the size. Oh, it's a nine and a half medium. We know exactly who they belong well, to. Is it Lydia? It's, yeah, it's Lydia. It's got it. Yeah, she's got, she used to have a supply of shoes. So there you go. Those of you watching at WABCRadio.tv, you can see Lydia's shoes here. It was International Women's Day, so maybe she, maybe it's, uh, there were a lot of women in here. I guess these are Lydia's shoes. These are, I, th- I mean, I have no idea what shoes cost, but is Nine West an expensive shoe? Molly, do you know anything about shoes? I'm going to refrain from talking about price points of Lydia's Why, are, are, Does that mean they're expensive or not expensive? Just tell me. I that. don't know. I just feel like that's like a, I, I mean, but personally, for what's expensive to me might not be expensive to other people because I'm 24. Right. So, and and the implications of being 24 is, is hopeless poverty, but um, right. not, maybe not for much Matt, longer. Matt, can you give but... me a less politically correct answer? Do you know if I these shoes are expensive or I not? I have no idea. You, I see, I neither do I. Fine, know. fine, fine. Maybe I would say uh, like... Uh, from anywhere between like forty five to a hundred dollars. Okay, I mean, so that's shoes. that's not a crazy. Yeah. No, it's like it's like an average. Shoe. You know, I don't but, expect them to be. No, neither would I. But crazy my question expensive. is, why are they here in the studio? I mean, what did she wear? Have you never been in a rush before, Frank? Yeah, but I don't walk out barefoot. Wouldn't she when she left the studio? Wouldn't she have noticed? Oh. I'm not wearing shoes. I would think that she took off those shoes and put on flats. Would that be an assessment, Molly? Because I, I, I'm assuming. I don't know. I don't know, but I do enjoy listening to men analyze women's behavior. Yeah, I, I, I enjoy trying to picture why someone of any gender would leave their shoes in their workplace. I can understand you take your shoes off. You know, relax a little bit. You know, you're there a while. You're working hard. Maybe your your feet are a little sore. But why leave your shoes at work? I, that I, I don't get. All right. So that's that. So uh, if you want to email me, you can do so. Frank.Morano at WABCRadio.com. That's Frank.M-O-R-A-N-O at WABCRadio.com. I got to tell you this. I was debating whether or not I should share this with you today. But, look, whenever there's one of these debates, it always ends one way. It always ends with me sharing with you, right? So I have told you before that I used to be very good friends with uh, Lionel, the great radio talk show host Lionel and uh, former prosecutor, former defense attorney, still an attorney in private practice. And I was thinking of him a lot recently. I follow him on YouTube. I subscribe to his YouTube channel. I, I follow him on Twitter. I'm a big fan. And uh, and we used to be such good friends. Not only would he come on the radio with me, not only would he come on shows that I was producing, but he would also um, we would socialize. I would go see him when he'd be performing at the cutting room. I um, we would talk on the phone regularly. He'd give me career advice. We'd talk policy. Uh, we went out to brunch several times. He and his wife and me and my ex-girlfriend. And for some reason, over the last two years, I've gotten Zip, 
Zilch, zero, nada. Radio silence. And so I said, I thought of him this week because he's on RT a lot. And I thought, well, let me reach out to him. I'd love to have him talk about the Ukraine situation and a bunch of other things, and including RT America shutting down operations and laying off a bunch of people. So I wrote in the, I wrote him an email. This is what I said. I'm going to tell you exactly what I said, and I'll share with you what he said. Hi, Lionel. I hope you're well. Miss you and Lynn. Lynn's his wife. I was hoping we might be able to schedule an interview on this Ukraine situation along with anything else you feel like talking about. Would we be able to do something? Thanks, Frank. Now, I'm hoping to get him on the show. Now, it's a pretty reasonable email invitation. Now, there's a couple of ways that you can respond to that, right? You could say, oh, Frank, you know, it's great to hear from you, but the hours are too tough for me. Or, hey, Frank, sure, I'd love to do it. Or, Frank, I can do it, but I can't do it live. Is it possible to pre-tape something? Or uh, I'm not able to do it because I have a contractual obligation to X, Y, Z. Or I'm too busy. Whatever. This is the response that I got back from Lionel. And I was happy to get any response back because it had been so long since I had communicated with Lionel and had him respond. This is what he wrote back to me. And I got to tell you, I don't really get upset. As you heard, that one caller, Dominic Carter was praising me um, before the show. And he says, oh, I heard that one caller who dissed you yesterday. And you didn't let it bother you. You just let it roll off your back. That's what I got to do. You're so good at that. I got to tell you, most stuff does not bother me. This email response back bothered me. And you tell me if it should. 800-848-9222. So I asked to schedule an interview for this show. This is what Lionel wrote back to me. Good day, Frank. If cats would care to have me on, I'd be more than happy to oblige. All the best. Now, how insulting is that? Basically, the way I took that as, well, I'm not going to come on your show. I'm not going to do an interview with you. But if John Katsimatidis, who owns the radio station, who has one of the most listened to shows on the radio station, and who also happens to be a billionaire, uh, if, if he wants me on, then I'd be more than happy to oblige. Now, so I, I write him back. I'll let him know, which I will. Is there any reason that you wouldn't want to come on with me? No response. No response. And I got to tell you, that really did tick me off. And I don't think I'm off. I don't think I'm off base here being a little perturbed at that email exchange. Matt, Blaze, what do you think? I think it's fair you to be a little perturbed. Yeah, I, I do, too. I do, At least too. an email back. I mean, he's not even responding. Well, yeah, not after my, my follow-up. There. Right, that's what I mean. Yeah. So, I don't know. I don't know. I want to encourage you to subscribe to the podcast. Uh, You can just search The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. And uh, wherever, you know, you get your podcasts, iTunes, Google Podcasts, CastBox, whatever the case may be. And uh, I was we also do an individual podcast focused on organized crime. I was going to try and get one done yesterday, but the guest that I was working on didn't come to fruition. And so it's going to be posted a little bit later in the week. But if you haven't uh, caught up on the Racket Report podcast, you can hear them all at WABCradio.com or you can search the Racket Report wherever you get your podcasts. So there's that. 800-848-9222. Jay is in South Carolina. Hello, Jay. Hey, hello. Hello, Jay. Hello, how are you? I'm just peachy, Jay. Oh, man. That is so great, man. It's great to hear from you. Great to be heard from. Oh, no joke. Um, It it is so funny. It's uh, 
you see what's going on in the world today. It's nuts. It is. Yeah, the whole place is turning upside down. Well, the nice thing about a planet that's spherical, if you turn it upside down, it still looks pretty much the way it does when it's right side up. Am I right? You know. 800-848-WABC. We'll continue with your calls. Maybe we'll have a moratorium. Like President Biden is having a moratorium on importing gas from Russia. Maybe we'll have a moratorium on callers from South Carolina for the next hour. Well, maybe not. That guy, Jay, seems like a nice guy. He said it was great to hear from me. I'm starting to doubt his sincerity about as much as I doubt Sid's sincerity about telling Margot hello. All right. Uh, we got a lot to get to. Uh, one point that the caller made, I think it was Pamela, about moving to from a red state to a blue state. Well, believe it or not, a lot of people are doing that. I'll tell you about it. Until then, help control the pet population. Get your dog or cat spayed or neutered. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. Everyone, this is the other side of midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. You know, it's funny. I talk with people all the time from New York that say they're moving elsewhere, and they cite a lot of reasons. Look, Florida has always had an advantage for a lot of people over the climate. See, in my case, I actually like the winter. I like the change of seasons. I like experiencing hot and cold. And everything in between. But uh, a lot of people don't. But putting aside the weather, which Andrew Cuomo says is the big reason people move out of the state. A lot of people have been moving. So my friend Mike Wolf, for instance, and uh, some of you might have heard me talk about my friend Mike Wolf before. He is someone. We didn't have the wolf howl. Uh, no. So, oh, there you go. Thank you. So Mike Wolf. Um, sent me a text message the other day of a, him and a photograph of someone that I've interviewed before on this show who lives in Florida. And I said, oh, where did you see her? And he said, I just moved to Florida. So it turns out that part of the reason that Mike Wolf moved to Florida, well, look, part of it was taxes, saving a lot of money on taxes moving there. But part of it was politics. He's sort of fed up with the political climate in New York. He happens to be a conservative, and he wants to be in a state where there's some conservative governance. He likes some of the things that Ron DeSantis has been doing, and he likes just Florida government, Florida politics, much more so than, than New York. If you go on Facebook, there's a face a private Facebook group. By the way, you should join our private Facebook group. Morano Radio Fans and Haters. That's M-O-R-A-N-O Radio Fans and Haters. But um, quick aside here. If you join that Facebook group, I am on the air for over 20 hours a week. There's plenty to comment on about this show. You could comment about the guests. You could comment about the things I'm saying. You could comment about the topics we cover. You could comment about the bumper music we play. You could comment about the callers. Good comment about Matt Blaze not being ready with the wolf sound effect. There's so many things that you can comment on. Why do you need, thank you, yes, uh, 
why do you need to bash the other hosts? I had to decline two or three posts yesterday of people who were trying to bash my colleagues. Now, don't do that. I mean, it's not going to do anything if you make a, well, I don't like so-and-so. Okay, that's a discussion for somewhere else. But anyway, there's a private Facebook group with over 8,000 members called Conservatives Moving to Texas. And you see um, all sorts of images of people eating barbecue and uh, being unvaccinated and not wearing a mask. And NPR spoke to one woman named Lynn Seaton, a 59-year-old portrait photographer from Orange County, California. And she says that when the state of California forced her to close her photography studio over COVID restrictions, she and her husband, a retired newspaper editor, knew it was time to escape. And they moved to Texas. And a lot of conservatives have moved to Texas. A lot of conservatives have moved to Florida. And I did a little research, and it turns out that America has become more and more politically polarized. Now, I have been saying for years that one of the key reasons for this was gerrymandering. In blue states like New York, they're redistricting to make the districts bluer. In red states like Florida, they're redistricting to make the districts redder. And that's still a factor. But evidently, another factor is people are just moving. If you Red, red voters are moving to red zip codes and blue voters, Democrats, are moving to bluer zip codes. People are sorting themselves according to the real estate data, by politics. They're moving into areas of folks who share their politics. Tiffany Wooten, is. she also spoke to NPR. She's a conservative from, um, she recently relocated from Indiana to Texas. And she's a liberal. And she moved to a liberal city in Texas, liberal Austin. And she said, we felt very out of place and very uncomfortable at times. We were looking at blue cities because we wanted to be with our own people. Be with our own people. I have to tell you, I saw a quote. I did. I read a bunch of articles on this subject um, in the preparation for this segment. And I saw so many quotes like that one from Tiffany Wooten from... Liberals that only want to be among liberals, uh, that they don't want to see a, uh, a Trump flag or a let's go Brandon sign. And from conservatives that don't want to be around liberals. So this trend seems to be quickening. And I have to tell you, I think this is potentially very dangerous. Now, look, I hate these covid restrictions more than anybody. So if people are moving because they don't want to be around these COVID restrictions where you need to show a vaccine passport and wear a mask everywhere, I I get that. But if you're moving just because you don't like the uh, politics of your community, I, I don't think that's – I don't – look, who am, I'm not going to judge anybody else, but I'm saying in my own case, it's not something I would ever do. And I can't understand why voters would do that. I like being exposed to all sorts of different points of view, all sorts of different voters. I like it when you have this hodgepodge of political ideologies all 
interacting with one another. Neighbors who are Democrat, Republican, Independent, Libertarian, Green, Socialist, non-political. And I, I find this trend of Americans self-sorting by ideology very dangerous. And maybe I'm being a little too hyperbolic, but I, I do find it dangerous. Um, when uh, you say I want to be around, you know, you know, you want to be around your own people. I don't think that's a healthy mentality, but it looks like I will soon be in the minority because more and more people are doing this. What do you think? 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. And they're saying they're calling, this whole phenomenon has a name, and you're going to hear a lot about this over the next few years. So remember, you heard it from me first. It's called the big sort That's what they're calling this, this trend of people moving based on politics. That's what's called the big sort. And it might be making Americans more politically extreme. Now, when you move to a place, you consider the schools, you consider the crime, you consider the quality of life, the real estate prices. Now people are moving about because of politics. Larry Sabato, who's one of the smartest political scientists in the whole country, He posted an analysis that shows how America's super landslide counties, both Democrat and Republican, have grown over time. Listen to these numbers. Of the nation's total number of counties, there's 3,143 counties in this country. The number of super landslide counties where a presidential candidate won at least 80% of the vote. Now, that's a landslide. That's not just a landslide. It's a super landslide. That in 2004, there were only 6% of the counties in this country that were super landslide counties in 2004. Now, that's not that long ago. That's only 18 years ago. Do you know what that number was in 2020? 22%. Think about that. The number of counties that are not just one-party counties, but super one-party counties was 6% 18 years ago. Now it's 22%. So Americans are sorting themselves into political, I don't know, political segregation. What do you think about this? 800-848-WABC. And do you share my view that you enjoy being around people who might have differing points of view. To me, the most fun I have is being at a table where there's people of different political persuasions. It's the most fun that I have. And uh, I learn from people that disagree with me. Uh, I think some cases they learn from me. And I'm amazed at uh, how often when you put aside the pro-wrestling aspect of the personalities involved, how much conservatives and liberals actually agree upon when you take away the personalities. Uh, Give me your take on this. You're also welcome to comment on anything else we've covered thus far. 800-848-9222. Now, the big winner today is uh, likely to be uh, Matt Blaze because while I am abstaining from egg salad for Lent, I told my, my Aunt Camille called me a couple of days ago and she said, should I still make the egg salad? 
And uh, I said, well, yeah, my coworkers really like it, especially Matt Blaze. Love it. So isn't that like the Absolutely. best egg salad you've ever had? It's I'm very really pati- good. I'm very particular about my egg salad. I cannot have store-bought egg salad. It has to be homemade. And, and she does it perfectly. She is making – she has made egg salad. And this afternoon, um, after we take my son to uh, a pediatrician appointment, we will be picking up egg salad that is primarily going to be earmarked for you. Can't wait. So it's exciting. Did you see – now, they had a big luncheon for International Women's Day yesterday. And one of the big beneficiaries of these days is the staff that works here because there's a feast – Whenever they have one of these days, whether it's for Black History Month or International Women's Day or whatever. I think we celebrate everybody. I think we're at the point where we're now celebrating, um, you know, Asian transgender people, Asian transgender liberals. You know, uh, they have a day. And I'm all for it. I love celebrating. I'm marching everybody's parade. But um, they have sandwiches. And again, I'm trying to be super good now because it's a lot easier to be careful with what you're eating when you're um, when you're not drinking alcohol, and I'm not drinking alcohol now, so it, it, not only do you avoid the empty calories of alcohol, but look, alcohol leads to so many other food problems. Not only are you less disciplined with what you're eating, but you have this whole notion of oh, wouldn't some uh, some cheese go great with this wine? Uh, you have you know you have oh, wouldn't wouldn't a little bit of chocolate go great with this wine? You know, and apparently when you're when you're drinking, even if you're not drunk, your body sends a message to go seek out things like um, starches, which is certainly not a health food. So I'm staying away from all this stuff, sandwiches and egg salad and everything. And uh, they have a whole bunch of really good looking sandwiches and wraps in the kitchen, including and I'm betting Margot when she put in the catering order, I think she did this for me because she knows of my fondness for egg salad. They have a bunch of egg salad wraps. Did you try any of the wraps that are here? I did not, not yet. Yeah, but I heard they look a pretty good, good. Turkey wrap, roast beef wrap. There's a whole they bunch. They look of pretty wraps. good. Now, and then you I, know, you know, there's a whole tray of deviled eggs too. Oh, is there another new tray of deviled eggs? Is either true? either it's a new tray or the last one multiplied. No, well, so uh, again, I'm I'm gonna I'm trying to be good, so I'm gonna stay away from you. Sure, uh, stay, I'm gonna stay I can away go from get you. one right no, now. No, 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 don't don't <laughs> whole tray. 800-848-WABC. Ed is in Massachusetts. Hello, Ed. Hi, Frank. I just have a couple of questions about this Lionel um, development. Yes. Um, Did you say that began a a couple of years ago? Is that what you said? Yeah. For some reason, um, he uh, he stopped returning my emails, calls, and text messages about, uh, I'd say about two, two and a half years ago. Okay. When did John buy the radio station? Um, about two years ago? No, a little less than that, I think. Um, okay. A little and less. When than did that. when did your program start? Yeah, uh, September twenty ninth of two thousand twenty. Now you know what? So it was before that. I guess maybe we're going about on three years that I haven't heard from Lionel. Maybe about three years. Okay. All right. Well, I don't know. Well, maybe 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 my hypothesis doesn't. Well, hold tell me on. your hypothesis. I was just gonna. My hypothesis is there are some people, uh, you know, not a lot, but I have certainly run into this phenomenon in life, and I'm sure you have. You you seem like the exact opposite kind of person to this, but there are some people who are they're happy to be your friend and they're happy to be your good friend if you remain in the space they have assigned to you. Oh, interesting. But once you get out of that space, 
they don't they're they don't really want to be your friend anymore. Well, you know, I don't think that look, I have no doubt that that has happened with me and other people, but I don't think that happened with Lionel just because as I said, I was still producing a show on another station and hosting a weekly show on another station when he stopped returning my my emails, text messages and phone calls. So I don't think that's I don't think that's what it was. One thing that I had heard, one theory that I think has a little bit more likelihood is, um, um, you know, that, you know, Lionel does do regular appearances with Mark Simone and um, Mark Simone doesn't care for me. And I'm wondering if that was Mark's influence. But I had expressed to Lionel before my frustration with the fact that Mark Simone doesn't like me. And I don't know why. Um, and the reasons Mark has given to people over the years are so silly that you'd have to think he's making it up. And Lionel was always a very sympathetic ear. So I can't imagine that Mark would be able to turn him. But maybe he did. I don't know. Uh, is this my friend, Dr. Mason Pimler, on the line? Hi, Frank. How you doing? Hey, I'm doing where I could get you, my friend. Uh, hey, that's, I've been I've been trying to get you on the air with me for a while. It's uh, it's great to you it's have, great to talk you with have, you. But I consider you a friend. I want to go for dinner. I want to go for dinner. We'll, we'll do that. We'll do that. Now you are one of the finest uh, geriatric physicians anywhere in the world. Uh, how's the the practice of medicine these days? Thanks, Frank, for asking, and thanks for the compliment. I really appreciate it. Um, it's good. I happen to be doing now, and that's why I'm up. So the ER I'm doing for this month only. Um, I volunteered to do the emergency room with what was going on with COVID, but the COVID is not spiking. So I'm doing a lot of other cases. But medicine's good. You can go to sleep at night knowing you do well for people and uh, do well. But you have the business aspect of it as well. And it's changed quite a bit. But if you care about people and you care about uh, the medicine, it's good. It's good. I enjoy it. Well, so uh, give me your two cents on this uh, Lionel situation. And you are on my my two-call list for this weekend. So expect a call on uh, Friday afternoon or Saturday afternoon. Please. We go to Il Molina. I love that. Um, And there's a beautiful – and you bring your wife and your beautiful baby. I'd like to meet the baby. Well, we'll meet somewhere else in the city. Anyway, this is what I thought because I said he's such a nice guy. No, no, and I, I mean this from I, – let me qualify it. You have such an even-keel personality, like with that Mark Simone, or, and I hear you. I never hear you get upset or really say anything that, you know, have any viciousness or vindictiveness in you. It's very even-keel. What I think is when he sent to John Castor – I can't say your boss's name, whom I happen to like um, – is that – he probably wants to come on the station, get a show, and that's why he wants to meet him. He probably reached out to him, sent a resume or something to get a show at one time or to be a talk host on well, the show. Well, one that's time. certainly possible, but why not do the show with me and then say, oh, by the way, tell John I'd love to come on with him as well. I think that's very logic, logical, and the thing is that would have been a good audition if he wanted to get a show, but, you know, maybe – that maybe he, he he reached out to John and John never reached out to him. But that has nothing to do with you. He shouldn't take that out on you. Yeah, I find it very, very, very bizarre. Mason, it's great to hear from you. And well, uh, I'll you talk too, to you this week. Please have a nice show and be safe. Appreciate be well, it. My Thank friend. you. Great doctor there, Dr. Mason Pimler, also a frequent Atlantic City visitor. Joe is in New Jersey. Hello, Joe. Hey, Frank. I love the show. Help for a night fly by at work. Uh, it's awfully nice. Uh, yeah. What kind of work do you do? I'm a pharmacist. Oh, I okay. Me overnight. Great, great. 
Now, I got to say, I have to disagree with you. I always agree with you, except for this. Um, Dare you? Conservatives are, uh, they're more live and let live. I I don't really care what you do, how you do it. Um, Me and my friends will always say, but when I'm together with my group, we, when we go out, we have to tend to whisper. We are afraid to go on Facebook because you're afraid to get, um, you know, canceled. So we have like, uh, you go on one of the other kind of apps that you could just, uh, like a WhatsApp kind of thing to to text. Uh, We're not conspiracy theorists or anything, but it's, the town I'm in, they're they're pushing agendas that the majority of the town doesn't like. But um, so it, it's it's just for survival. It's just to raise your family. Well, I, the way I you can want understand because... that. Uh, I can understand that, Joe. So meaning you can understand why people are moving to these conservative-only counties. One hundred percent, and and it's you could see how people that think different than us, though they want they want the freedom too. They want the kid go down and they vote the way they used to vote someplace else. And well, now well, that cuts. Well, what part of New Jersey do you live in, Joe? Uh, north Northwest. North. See, uh, you're yeah. right about that. That does cut both ways, though, and, and we see a lot of conservatives. Or excuse me, a lot of liberals that move to um, moderate or conservative cities, and then they bring the liberal policies that they escaped, the high taxes and so forth, with them in their voting habits. But it's also going the other way. If you read David Wildstein, who you could hear every Saturday at 4 p.m. right here on this radio station, he has an interesting piece in the New Jersey Globe about all of the Staten Islanders that have moved to Monroe, New Jersey. And because of all these Staten Islanders that have moved there, they have flipped it from being a liberal city to now a conservative city, so much so that now the mayor and a whole bunch of city council members, just to get reelected, they've now all changed their party to Republican because of this migration of cons- of, P- of conservatives that have fled Staten Island to Monroe, New Jersey. Well, to me, though, I see that I see that as they're reaping the benefit, though, because again, conser- the conservative mindset basically is live and let live. You know, we don't care. We don't just we're not condescending. Uh, a lot of the friends that we associate with, they look down on the Trump people, the flag. Well, that's and, true. And they, oh, they that's, mock them. That, and, and I tell them, who's going to fight? the? You know, are you going to fight the war when, God forbid, something happens? It's it's the people from the south. It's the heart of the country that that stands up. They're the patriots. You know, the, the, the coasts, they hold this country sometimes in disdain. Yeah. Well, and, and, Joe, I totally get it. I, I think that's a... A real shame, though, when anybody thinks that they have to feels that they need to go underground uh, just to discuss politics. I mean, uh, keeping in mind the very real problems with cancel culture, don't you think it's a shame? No, I do, because I, I, I don't I don't understand it. Like if I put a Trump flag on my house before the election, I had a feeling that and some of my friends did. There, there was slight uh, vandalism. They throw the flag down, stuff like that. But all across my town, there are Black Lives Matter and, and, and a whole array of other things that they support and and we don't care we, we're not going to bother we don't we don't damage people's property but you know you're taking a chance by by espousing your, yeah. view or no, you're, your you're views you're right hey look maybe it's more sensible than uh maybe it's more sensible than than i gave it credit for from the beginning uh, great call joe thank you i see frank diaz enjoying one of these deviled eggs what do we think what's the verdict on those deviled eggs let's get he's he's chewing Thumbs up. Thumbs up from Frank Diaz. You know what? They have all these trays of food in the refrigerator. And I thought, let me let me see what else is there. Maybe there's a salad or something. But there's so many trays of food that I couldn't take one of the trays out to look at what was in the other trays without having some of the sandwiches that were in that tray, you know, be obstructed, right, and, and almost fall to the ground 
because it was it was, you know, too big. So I didn't want to reshuffle. It was like playing Tetris with all these trays of food. I mean, again, it's an, an embarrassment of riches. Most uh, most radio stations that I've worked at, you're lucky to be able to get a free cup of coffee here every day. You get like a, a regular feast. You never know what what to expect. Eight hundred eight four eight WABC. Eric is in Manhattan. Hello, Eric. Hey, Frank. Um, I know what you're saying how you know you want to speak with people who have differing opinions. Like when I would go on Facebook, I would never want to go into a room where everyone agrees with me. You know, right? But things are different now. Like I'm a, I'm a recovering Democrat. Okay. Um, like in 2000, we didn't, you know, we, we didn't like Bush getting elected, but we, we argued about it and that was it. Now, you know, people want to disown you for supporting Trump or it's just a little bit crazy. And I'm not saying Republicans are perfect, but the left has gone right over the edge. So it's a little bit, uh, it's just not the same, really. You can't, you, some people, I mean, you just can't, you can't, you can't talk to them, really. You know, it's, I'm basically agreeing with your, your last caller, you know, it's, uh, I give you example after example. Like, I never heard one conservative ever, I think threaten uh, Barack Obama's life, but but threaten Trump, it's like nothing. It's like every day there was something, you know, it's just, I don't know what it is. <laughs> so that's, yeah, well, look, uh, poli- uh, thank you, Eric. Look, political extremism exists on both sides, right? And there's people that are willing to carry out violence on both sides. Like the guy that was mailing, trying to mail bombs to all these Democrats, that's a right-wing nut job. The guy that shot up the conservatives at the baseball game where Steve Scalise and others were shot. That's a left-wing nut job. They're on there. They're both sides, right? You have uh, people like uh, the Unabomber on the left, people like Timothy McVeigh on the right. They're out there. But uh, I do agree that when it comes to Donald Trump, there was just something about Donald Trump and his supporters that caused people to react. I, I, I hate to use the, uh, you know, the, the, uh, cliche of Trump derangement syndrome. But I think that it is true. There's people people reacted in a bizarre and unhinged manner. You just mentioned Donald Trump's name. Folks start screaming. I mean, you can't even they can't even think straight. But and I do think and I try to be an honest broker here, but I do think that's more common on the left. That being said, I think there's still so much to be gained from surrounding yourself with people who have different belief systems than you do, whether it's religious belief systems, whether it's political belief systems or uh, cultural belief systems, whatever the case may be, I think there's so much to be gained by interacting with other cultures. And unfortunately, these political ideologies have become cultural. They are other cultures, and I really think it's dangerous when we put ourselves into these bubbles where we only surround ourselves with echo chambers of folks that agree with us on everything. And look, there's nobody that agrees with me on everything because I'm all over the place. Some issues I'm super left wing. Some issues I'm super right wing. There's not a room you could put me in where I agree with everybody. I, 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 and if I start agreeing with everybody, I get a little nervous. I start disagreeing with myself. Gracie is here in New York. Hello, Gracie. Hi, it's Rockland County, New ah, York. Ah, yes. Yes, of course. So, uh, the suburbs. Okay. Listen, uh, very interesting. Uh, what I uh, agree, we do break ourselves up into groups, and I'll tell you why. Because, number one, uh, I stopped. I'm 74 and a half. I stopped going to a book club here in uh, Rockland, 
uh, because they were all wacko liberals. Now you're going to say, oh, all right, so you're a wacko conservative. But they have, we talked about books. The the books they picked were, um, you know, always kind of left-wingish. But that was all right, because I do like what you said to uh, discuss things. But the problem was, if, you, if I never said anything about Trump to them, but I did come across traditional conservative. They have. It's good to have a discussion with someone who could discuss with you point for point. But all they could say, we don't like Trump. He tweets. Yeah, that's you a shame. I, I hate. Okay. I hate to hear that. Okay, now they and now my clicks now. Uh, I'm I'm just with conservative people. I know that sounds terrible. Today I was with my Canasta group, and we're all right-wingers. My other group, right-wingers. I mean, I I, I don't want to get aggravated. I don't blame you, Gracie, and I don't want to get aggravated either. I think maybe one of the things that we need to learn as a society, I've tried to do it a little bit on this program, but in general, maybe one of the things that we need to learn as a society is how to talk with people that we don't agree with without screaming at them, you know, so that so that people can disagree and have civil conversations. Could I just say one more thing? Sure, yeah. Yeah, thank you. Um, you know, my son married a California girl. Ooh. So, uh, all right, they're going to be married 21 years. Okay. So but we bought a condo in California because I figure when I really get old, I mean, at 74, I'm only old. I'm not really old. I figure I'll go there and he could take care of me. You sound great. But, you don't sound a day over 73. Right. Thank you. And But the point is this. I'm regretting. I wish. I'm sorry. He he lived there. They want. He wanted to move to Texas, but the wife won't go to Texas. Because, uh, but that's what it is. You can't stay in these these blue states. They're bleeding you dry. Well, I I will give you that. The cost is quite costly. That's for sure. Thank you, Gracie. I I'll just say and um um the, the one thing I'll just add here is one of the other things I think is a shame about what Gracie said. And what Joe said and uh, the other caller there, Eric, is that it's a shame when you go into these groups that have nothing to do with politics, Canasta um, and, you know, whatever social group that you might be in. And one of the things that I've noticed is when you want to maintain tranquility, there's one thing people do. One thing is they all say, oh, no, no, let's not discuss politics. Let's not discuss politics so that we can all be friends and we don't have to scream at each other. Now, I think that's such a shame. Now, I've mentioned before how I was in the uh, event videography business many years ago. And I remember going to one wedding, and it was a joint wedding by a priest and a rabbi. It was a Monsignor, actually. And the Monsignor said uh, at this interfaith service, one of the mistakes that a lot of interfaith couples make is by not having religion be a big part of their family's lives because of the differences that these couples have when it comes to religion. I feel the same way about politics. I think it's such a shame that in order to get along with one another, we feel the need to not even discuss the areas that we disagree on. Every year I read some Thanksgiving tips for facilitating discussions with folks that you might not agree with. Maybe we'll revisit that more often than once a year because that I think that's a real shame. All right. What's also a shame is what is happening in Ukraine. I'm going to talk about it in just a second. 
with Dr. Not Dr. Uh, Professor David Hendrickson. I'm not sure if he's a doctor. I haven't looked at his detailed curriculum vitae, but I, what I have looked at is a fascinating piece that he's written in the national interest about how America can really help Ukraine and how America got the whole situation in Ukraine wrong. He is being killed for this piece by the foreign policy establishment. Anybody that's being snarked at and scoffed at by the foreign policy establishment, that is my kind of a guy. And um, unlike Lionel, when I asked him to come on the radio with me at 3.30 in the morning, he said, I'm usually never up at that time, but what the hell? I'll get up. That's the kind of attitude I like. We'll talk with David Hendrickson straight ahead. WABC. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano, 77 WABC. It's the great George Ezra here on the other side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. Uh, We've been looking at this Ukraine situation and somebody that uh, I think has been uh, really on the money in terms of his own analysis of the situation and uh, not just not just recently, but for a number of years is David Hendrickson. He is the president of the John Quincy Adams Society and Sir Emeritus of Political Science at Colorado College. David, thanks so much for getting up so early. I know it is a rough time. Yeah, well, uh, it's fun to be with you. I uh, kind of wonder who your audience is at this time of the night, oh. New York City. But uh, well, they're substantial. I'm sure it's a good class me. of people. That is for sure. They're certainly substantial. By the way, before we get into uh, the article in the National Interest that caught my attention, what is the John Quincy Adams Society? It's an educational nonprofit. Uh, we have uh, chapters uh, across the country that uh, bring in speakers and that sort of thing and organize student clubs to talk about uh, issues of foreign policy and hopefully educate them about some of the foreign policy traditions and principles of the United States. Now, in order to be president of the John Quincy Adams Society, did you also have to have your father be president of it? <laughs> right. Yeah, we go back a long way with the Adams. I, I can imagine. All right. Now, um, you have this terrific uh, article. I'm going to link to it on my Facebook page at uh, Facebook.com slash Morano fan. How America can really help Ukraine. And you write about how the United States needs to start thinking about solutions that will lessen the number of people killed and how there's a big difference between doing that versus hurting the Russians. Let's look at what America has done thus far. Uh, One of the big 
um, weapons that America has been deploying so far has been sanctions. It got a little worse yesterday with uh, President Biden making the announcement that they're not going to allow any imports of Russian gasoline. What's your view of how sanctions have worked out and how they will work out? Well, I think at the end of the day, we're going to regard what we did, especially the seizure of the Russian central bank assets, as a huge self-inflicted wound. Uh, I don't think they're going to get the Russians out of Ukraine. I don't think they're going to overthrow Putin. But I do think they're going to bring a really first-class economic calamity uh, to the world. And the reason, uh, Frank, is that uh, that's a gigantic step. I mean, you know, that's a WFD, a weapon of financial destruction in the sense that it signifies the abolition of all contracts with the Ruskies or Russian companies. Now, that's a big deal because they play a really important role in a lot of very important commodity complexes. I mean, energy, oil and natural gas, uh, all the metals, all the grains. And uh, I think that we've thrown a wrench into the uh, works there, you know, because once you have uh, a series of defaults, that sort of thing, uh, lots of counterparty risk, uh, lots of things going awry. Now, the administration has been very Pollyannish about that and said, well, we'll choose what we can, what we're willing to buy, as if the Russians have no say in the matter, but they do. Uh, you know, they have to decide what they're going to sell. Yeah, well, and, and additionally, as you point out, not only does this open America up for Russian reprisal in the form of things like cyber warfare and other things, but it essentially pushes Russia into a permanent economic alliance with with China and other adversarial countries. Yeah, I mean, that's been a long time in the making, the the alliance between China and Russia. And I think that, you know, basically we had a policy towards both of them that kind of made them permanent enemies. And uh, we sought to prevent them from having any friends. And so they're in the sack together right now and realize that uh, one another is about the only people they got to stand with them. Okay, so that alliance now, from my point of view, is fundamentally unbreakable from the standpoint of the West. I, I don't think it had to be that way, but that's kind of the way it is. And so, you know, when we sanction the Russians, uh, we'll also be trying to, you know, go after the Chinese insofar as the Chinese lend help to the Russians. And I think we're going to meet with a big refusal mm. on the Chinese point of view from them. You know, in other words, that we won't be able to do that successfully. Now, so much of the conversation about helping the Ukrainians, not only from the United States, but from other Western allies, has focused on the idea of military aid for the Ukrainians so that they can fight back on a more even footing with the superior Russian military. You don't think that uh, military aid for the Ukrainians is a good idea either. How come? Well, uh, let me put it this way, that, you know, Ukraine has to fight with the army it has, uh, like other states at war. And um, it's just extremely difficult to see how 
U.S. military aid at this point is going to alter the outcome of the big battles in the East. Uh, the the um, you know, there's a kind of uh, double talk from the administration in this regard, uh, similar to the double talk that preceded the war with regard to NATO expansion, you know, which has a sort of uh, now you see it, now you don't character. Because they say, on the one hand, oh, we're not going to intervene in the war. You know, that's out of the question. And I mean, I think that's the right decision to not do a fly zone, no fly zone and things of that sort, because that would be World War Three. That's a very serious thing. But we do say, you know, somehow we're going to send in all of this aid that's going to alter the war, but that won't be an intervention. But, you know, they need to make up their mind as to what they intend to do. And uh, I do think that there would be, you know, some kind of military aid that could conceivably be relevant in altering the outcome of these battles over the next month or two. But then that would be an intervention. That would be the thing they've ruled out. And if it's not that then it's not going to alter it. Uh, so that's the first point I'd like to make. The second one is that the, um, you, you know, the implicit strategy of the U.S. is, uh, well, the Soviets have, or the Russians have done an Afghanistan. So our response is, we're going to make it a bloody Afghanistan. Hey, look, 40 years on, uh, what is Afghanistan now? I mean, it's the biggest hellhole on the planet, mm -hmm. and there are, half of them are going to starve this winter. And uh, we don't want that outcome. I don't want that outcome for Ukraine. And I think that there can be, you know, kind of political solutions. I mean, resistance to occupation can sometimes take a peaceful form and be effective, you know, over time. Uh, not necessarily right away, but over time. And so I do think we need to be thinking in those terms, you know, kind of beyond the present moment. Uh, you know, I read the other day that uh, all the bridges in Ukraine are now destroyed. And, uh, you know, I'm wondering what's going to happen to the majority of the people in terms of their ability to, you know, have any kind of right. decent existence. Right. Well, Who's uh, going to pay for that? So if sanctions is not a great strategy for aiding the Ukrainians, if military aid is not something that's a great strategy for um, helping the Ukrainians. Look, we see Vladimir Putin and Russia act as the aggressor here and invade a uh, an independent sovereign country. Doesn't the United States and the West and the international community have to do something to show its displeasure with Putin if it's not increased military aid and if it's not sanctions what is it? What is the best way to number one show Russian dis, uh, to, uh, Russian disapproval, and number two help the people that we say we want to help the Ukrainians? Well, I mean, you know, my my basic proposition is that they're kind of beyond our help at this point. I mean, in terms of what we really want to give them, which is independence from Putin and Russia. Uh, that's a very unfortunate fact but it's kind of been that way actually you know for a long time and we didn't admit it to ourselves that is we said uh, okay we're going to expand nato to bring in ukraine and that's a threat against the russians and that was also uh, a message to the ukrainians hey we've got your back and then 
when it actually came to the time, well, we didn't have their back, and we really couldn't because that would mean a war. And uh, so we did kind of lead them on with, into this very impossible situation. Now, as I say, though, I don't see the way out of it through a war. We can't go to war to save them, and I don't think the, the military aid will really do that. So, I mean, you know, you would hope to do that through diplomacy. And, uh, you know, historically, I mean, there were some reasons for the Russians to want to have at least minimally decent relations with the West. Now, I think that's kind of gone now, unfortunately, and I don't really see a way back diplomatically to that situation. So uh, the uh, I know that's not a satisfactory answer to people to say, well, there's not really a lot we can do. I think we've done too much in the sense that we've done a lot of things that are going to recoil upon us, and we don't realize the uh, the cascading consequences down the pike from all of these sanctions that we've taken. And uh, so, you know, as I say, though, I, you know, over the long term, there are economic instruments, there's diplomatic uh, pressures and that sort of thing, whereby to, you know, conceivably think about a settlement, but it's way too early to do that because we don't know what the situation is going to be on the ground. We don't even know what Putin's war aims are. I mean, you know, those are really unclear. I mean, I could explain why they are if if you have well, sure, go ahead. Get into that, sure. I mean, so he stated that his criteria for ending this uh, this siege is um, recognition of Russian control of Crimea, independence for those two breakaway republics in the Donbass region, demilitarization, and a pledge of neutrality and abstention from. Any international blocks, presumably things like NATO and the EU, you think there's more to his uh, his goals than just those those goals, those state well, goals. Well, uh, I think the real big trouble comes with the third. And what does that mean? Neutralization and a new government in Ukraine that's not hostile to Russia. Well, you know what he's done is so angered uh, the majority of the Ukrainian people that. Uh, even if he hives off a certain section in the east that I think would be larger than the Donbass, there's still the whole west of the country that's going to be anti-Russian. So, you know, the dilemma from the Russian point of view is they don't want to occupy the place, but they have a set of war aims that require them to occupy the place. They can't occupy the whole country, but any solution that they accept that doesn't entail that means that they've reconstituted, you know, this dangerous line somewhere in Ukraine uh, that's going to separate <clears throat> separate the east and the west. So it's that contradiction. You know, it's sort of like Bush in 2003 in Iraq. Hey, we're going to invade Iraq and put in a new government, and then the UN will come in in a couple of months and you know take it off our hands. Well. <laughs> Didn't work out that way, did it? I mean, who's going to take it off his hands? But, I don't see. I mean, is it a Quisling government that he's going to appoint? I don't see that working. So I don't have so, – You know, there's a sort of basic kind of what is the outcome that he wants, Putin? And I, don't, I, I still don't see it. I mean, I think it's very unclear. And, of course, a lot of it will depend upon, you know, whether we have these big battles in the cities and whether there's a siege of Kiev or, a, you know, how – stout the people are in terms of fighting him and that sort of thing. Uh, 
you know that's uh, that's all very unclear to me. I don't However, have a, I don't yeah. have a, a great answer for what the United States should do next either. But I, you know, I do know that Americans see all these images of these Ukrainians being murdered and fleeing their homes, and a million and a half refugees being forced to flee their country, and they view. Putin and the Russians, in spite of the role that NATO may have played in sort of spoiling for war, they view Putin as the man that's responsible for that. And to basically just say, all right, well, there's nothing the international community and the nothing nothing the West can do. It doesn't sit right with most Americans sense of justice. You can understand that, right? Absolutely. No, and I think that, you know, as I wrote, the invasion was, you know, five times wrong and 12 times stupid. I mean, I don't see it. Uh, and I didn't think he would do it. And it was so crazy. Well, neither did I. Without yeah. even telling the Russian people. So I I admit all of that. And I, I totally accept that, yeah, it's a very unfortunate situation to be in one in which you recognize an act of injustice going on and you're kind of powerless effectively to deal with it. Um, so... Yeah, that's unfortunate. And uh, but as I say, that's the situation that we got ourselves into by entertaining these very ambitious objectives in an area that the Russians regarded as a vital interest to them. And, uh, you know, I mean, think back to 2003. Uh, I would I would caution Americans to think, you know, we fought a lot of wars and we bombed a lot of cities in Syria and Iraq in the last. 10 years, and even then before that went into Baghdad. And, you know, the networks never actually looked at those from the standpoint of the people who were getting hit. All right? I mean, we didn't have CNN cameras down there with the uh, jihadis that we were uh, sure. uh, killing. And whenever a city is taken, I mean, it's a terrible thing. I don't care who does it. And the methods that you use to do it are awful. And people get killed. And it's disgusting because war isn't kind of intrinsically disgusting. And I I do believe that. And I have pacifistic dispositions as a consequence, having you know seen those consequences all over the world. But we also have to apply a standard that's fair. You know, like what are they doing versus what did we do? And how did we conduct these uh, operations when we took a city? And if you look at Kobani... And, uh, you know, Mosul and all of these cities in Syria and Iraq in the aftermath of the American operation, uh, the civilians didn't do so well there, I'm telling you. You know, every building was flattened. So, yeah, war's terrible. And uh, we, uh, we need to – we should have a diplomacy that tries to avoid that. I don't think we did in the approach to this Ukraine crisis. And now we're in a situation, as I say, where we most intensely want to help them. And I I understand where that's coming from, but practically we can't. Mm. I mean, practically we only have available a set of means, these draconian economic sanctions that aren't going to achieve the object. They're not going to bring Putin down. Uh, They're not going to get the Russians out, but they're going to do a lot of damage to us and to the world economy. And then we have the military option, whereas uh, just to repeat myself, whether, you know, where we really rejected going to war rightly, but the means that we've chosen short of that are not going to actually do the thing we want to do. 
So yeah, that's a bad situation yeah, to be that, in. That is for that's sure. Where not, we are. not a lot of reasons to be optimistic. All right, David, we're going to have to end it there. I really enjoyed uh, speaking with you. I enjoy reading your work. I want to, if people are interested in learning more about your view of foreign policy and America's place in the world, they should check out the book Republic in Peril: American Empire and the Liberal Tradition. Uh, they can also go to your website, davidhendrickson.org. Dave, thanks so much for the time this morning. Thank you, Frank. If you want to comment on any portion of our discussion, you're welcome to give me a call, 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. Straight ahead. WABC. We are New York on New York's Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. Adios, my friend. The road we have traveled has come to an end. When to love. Well, we're not quite ready to say uh, adios yet. Uh, we still have one more hour to go, and uh, we will take your calls in uh, just a minute. 800-848-WABC. That is 800-848-WABC. You can join the uh, Facebook group at, uh, just go to uh, Facebook.com and search Morano Radio Fans and Haters. That's uh, M-O-R-A-N-O Radio Fans and Haters. And, you know, it's funny. Yesterday I mentioned, you know, I just, part of the show is I describe my day. And I just mentioned that, uh, you know, I was going to, there's a couple, in the afternoon, between 1 and 5, I have to, um, you know, watch my son because my wife's working. And then, sure enough, somebody goes in the Facebook group and says, oh, how dare you say you have to watch your son? And, um, again, they said I used the term babysit, which I did not. But... um, so I thought, okay, one lone nut in the Facebook group. That's okay, fine. Then I'm talking to my friend Brian Silverstein yesterday, one of my oldest friends, and um, he's asking me, oh, what are you doing Friday? And I I say, oh, I'm doing this and I'm doing that. He says, I'm going to be right by you starting at around 2 o'clock. I'm going to be right around the corner from you. Uh, maybe you want to come and, and hang out. And uh, I said, what time are you going to be there? He says, 2 o'clock. Well, I really can't leave at 2 o'clock because I have to watch Carmine. And uh, he said, oh, my wife, Katie, said to tell you that fathers don't watch their children. They love their children. Now, I have to tell you, that is the most ridiculous thing in the world that I've ever heard. And the fact that I've now been exposed to two different people who've said that is to me just crazy. You understand what I mean when I say I have to watch my child. What I'm saying is I have to supervise my child because at three months old, he's not quite ready to be on his own. And his mother's busy and his babysitter is not there. So I have to watch him to make sure that, you know, if he cries or he needs something, that I'm there to look out for him. So I'm loving him all the time. 
that's not an activity that takes me away from doing something else. So when I offer an explanation as to why I can't be somewhere or do something and I say I have to watch him, I think that's a perfectly reasonable explanation. People ought to chill out a little bit, including my friend Katie. But if you want to be part of the the carnival, the social media carnival and insanity that is the Morano Radio Fans and Haters Facebook group, we'd be happy to have you. If you are sane, we'd love to have a few more sane people there and contributing because a lot of the sane people, they feel like Joe in New Jersey. They, they feel afraid to speak out and be sane. Only Ellen is the lone sane person. Not the lone sane person, but she's one of the most vocal sane people. Just join the Facebook group. John Scandali goes to. There's actually about, I'd say, 20 sane people. Uh, just join the Facebook group, Morano Radio Fans and Haters. Help the sane folks add to their numbers. Until next hour, your influence counts, so use it. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. You know, I, I try to stay away from the talk topics that everybody is doing, right? I mean, the easy ones, right? The the talk. See, what I like is a talk topic that no one is doing. I like a talk topic that makes you think. I like a talk topic that teaches you something new. I like a talk topic where I can learn something new. I uh, to me that's fun. That's what talk radio is all about. Could be controversial. Could be uncontroversial. Could be about movies. Could be about pro wrestling. Could be about uh, baseball. Could be about Star Trek. Could be about aliens. Could be about proportional representation. Could be about approval voting. Whatever the case may be, I love stuff that's different, and I love stuff that's not just easy. You know, the easiest talk topic in the world to do is hey. Are you pro-life or pro-choice? Call in and tell me why. Hey, should flag burning be legal or illegal? Call in and tell me why. It's Pardon me while I sleep. But one talk topic that's been done to death over the last 20 years, but especially the last two years, has been the issue of renaming. And my attitude uh, when it comes to renaming things has generally been, I, I'm, I'm simplifying it here, has generally been to not do it because everybody is flawed. Throughout history, everybody's got flaws. And rather than try to erase people from history as the Soviet Union might do, I think it's a much better thing to try to learn from those folks in history. 
That being said, um, this is in the news yet again in New Jersey because of what the city of Trenton, the capital of New Jersey, is doing. They are saying, so long, Christopher Columbus. And while you're at it, and the horse you rode in on, well, maybe not the horse you rode in on, but so long to Woodrow Wilson as well. The Trenton Board of Education yesterday announced committee to move forward on the renaming of Columbus and Wilson Elementary Schools. Now, look, I recognize that um, Columbus was always a controversial figure, but I think Columbus has had a lot of contributions that are worth celebrating. I don't think we should be renaming schools for him. Woodrow Wilson, I'm uh, much less of a fan of, but look, the guy led the nation through World War One. He created the League of Nations. He presided over the ratification of the 19th Amendment, giving women the right to vote. He signed into law laws prohibiting child labor, uh, laws mandating an eight-hour workday for railroad, railroad workers. And even before he was president, the guy led a remarkably accomplished life. The guy was a scholar. He had written all sorts of books about um, the structure of government. He had written about other presidents. The guy was one of the brightest presidential scholars um, that has ever held the office of president. But so the thing that I'm left wondering is this. If the people of Trenton, as articulated through their public officials on the Trenton Board of Education. If the people of Trenton don't want schools named for Christopher Columbus and Woodrow Wilson, and if parents don't want their kids going to schools named for Woodrow Wilson and Christopher Columbus, why should we force them to? Right? Um, This is what... This is what... um, So the intent of the Trenton Board of Education to rename two of its schools is the culmination of a discussion with the board that began last year. It included a review of current school names, as well as a review and update of the district's policy on school naming. That is the word from one of the people on the Board of Education. Both uh, Christopher Columbus and Woodrow Wilson have pretty infamous pasts, and uh, you don't need me to go through all of them. Uh, Wilson had a lot of segregationist views. Columbus had a lot of sort of pro-slavery views. But um, I'm reminded, and as I was thinking about this, and I try not to jump to conclusions, but I I, I was reminded of a quote from Jefferson, and I had to look it up. And it's in a letter that he wrote to James Madison just after the French Revolution had broken out. And in this letter, Jefferson argues that any constitution that the United States writes should expire after 19 years. Imagine that. Jefferson thought that. Any constitution should expire after 19 years, and it must be renewed every generation. This is what he writes to Madison. The question whether one generation of men has a right to bind another seems never to have been started either on this or our side of the water, meaning the European side of the water or the American side. 
But between society and society or generation and generation, there is no municipal obligation, no umpire, but the law of nature. We seem not to have perceived that by the law of nature, one generation is to another as one independent nation is to another. Now, this is Frank speaking, not Jefferson. Think about what Jefferson's saying there. He's saying people that live in one era can't force a set of rules or a set of laws or a set of mores on people that live in another era any more than the people of France can force upon the people of the United States a set of laws. He's saying the people in one generation versus another generation are exactly the same as people in one country versus another. Let me add to what he's saying here. Well, This is Jefferson. This is the rest of the letter here. On similar ground, it may be proved that no society can make a perpetual constitution or even a perpetual law. The earth belongs always to the living generation. Every constitution, then, and every law naturally expires at the end of 19 years. If it be enforced longer, it is an act of force and not of right. So uh, part of me is maybe just tired of always saying, don't rename things, don't rename things. But I'll ask you the question here, 800-848-9222. If the people of Trenton, if the parents of Trenton don't want their children to go to schools named for people they don't like, why should they? What do you think? 800-848-WABC. New Jersey, more New Jersey schools doing away with schools named for Christopher Columbus and Woodrow Wilson. What say you? 800-848-9222. A couple of other quick notes just in my stack of stuff here. We got a lot of reaction to our chocolate milk segment yesterday. Um, I mean, a surprising amount of reaction to the chocolate milk segment. But um, there is actually a big problem with chocolate milk in Maine. Um, there's is a headline in one one local paper up there. What happened to the chocolate milk? In rural Maine, a supply chain mystery. It was originally in the Washington Post, actually, this article. There was a tremendous problem with chocolate milk in this this community in Maine. And um, evidently, this, this community in, uh, I don't have the name of the town in front of me, um, northern Maine. It's in northern Maine. But they've been buying chocolate milk made by Halton Farms Dairy for years. And now when people go to the supermarket where they get their gallon jug, this is the latest casualty of the supply chain problem. There's no problem with the cows. The cows are still being milked. But for whatever reason... This custom-made chocolate powder, which is normally delivered four times a year from a factory in Illinois to Halton Farms Dairy, where they make this chocolate milk, 
it's been disrupted. When Eric Lincoln, the uh, co-owner of the dairy, spoke to his supplier in December, he learned it might take 12 weeks, triple the normal time, to receive this crucial ingredient, the chocolate powder. That's when Lincoln knew he'd have to curtail production. The story or the mystery of the disappearing chocolate milk is a microcosm of a much bigger problem. Businesses are grappling with transportation delays. We're seeing all sorts of issues here. But my heart goes out to these folks in Maine who have grown dependent on this chocolate milk, and now they can't get it. So there's that. All right. Um, You know, it's funny. I told you when I bought a ticket to my uh, brother's wedding how I bought it the wrong way. Instead of going from New York to Hawaii, I bought it from Hawaii to New York. Now, when I was trying to buy my own ticket, they give you an option online of where you want to sit on the plane. Now, I don't care where you sit on where I sit on the plane. I would like not to sit in the middle so I don't get squeezed in between two people. But uh, other than that, you know, I don't care. And I asked my wife, well, honey, where where should I sit on the plane? Now, my thinking is you want to sit as close to the front as possible because that's the closest to first class. If you're not going to be in first class, at least you want to be just outside of first class. Maybe one of the uh, the first class people will take pity on you and toss you a scone or something. But she says, no, um, you want to sit in the back, as far to the back as possible, because if there's a plane crash or something, then it's much less – you have a greater likelihood of survival. I said, well, honey, you know, I'm I'm betting that there's not going to be a plane crash. I'm going to go out on a limb on that one. And by the way, we, we have our president, Chad Lopez, coming in for his daily check-in. He's checking out our video feed and uh, looks like he's looking quite disapproving at the gray streak that's in my hair. Well, I got news for you, Chad. You gave me that gray streak. If you want to check it out, too, you can do so at wabcradio.tv. That's wabcradio.tv. We're on the YouTube as well. But when I had to cancel these airline tickets and then make a new uh, reservation by calling the good folks over at American Express, they booked this flight for me right from here to Hawaii and back. But they didn't ask me where I wanted to sit. Now, it doesn't make a huge difference. But how do you pick where to sit on an airplane? Um, Does it matter if it's the front or the back? My gut tells me I don't think it does. So weigh in on that if you want. Um, New Jersey schools doing away with Columbus, doing away with Wilson. Maine can't find a drop of chocolate milk in all of northern Maine. They're calling this the great chocolate milk famine of 2022. And uh, the plane issue as well. 800-848-9222. We're going to talk with David Sinclair in just a bit about how the government is spying on you. So don't do anything you don't want them knowing about. Tommy is in Brooklyn. Hello there, Tommy. Good morning, Frank. Howdy. Um, I was just wondering, if the new generation changes the laws as the, of the Constitution every 19 years, the new generation could propose laws that would take away retirement funds with the new legislation using taxes. Well, again, again, I'm not saying it should be expire every 19 years. Thomas Jefferson was, so take no, it up I, with I him. I'm just, I would be, I'm going to take it up with him. He's dead, right? Anyway, it appears, just appears to me that the, the people now are becoming so irrational with the extremism 
it, 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 uh, that was the other part of this. It, they're becoming so extreme, and 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 they cause division with extremism. It, it's just very un, un, unnerving to me. Well, look, it's unnerving to me too, Tommy. Thank you. And in my community, I wouldn't care if a school was named for Christopher Columbus or Woodrow Wilson, even though I'm not fond of Woodrow Wilson as a historical figure. I would use that as an opportunity to talk about Wilson's record, Columbus's record, the things they did well, the things they did not so well, and uh, learn, right? But I, I don't see what the benefit is to being erased from history. But in Trenton, they do. So why should the rest of us care? If this is what the people of Trenton today do, and it's what they want, why should they be bound by what they were doing 80 years ago? 800-848-WABC. Tom is calling from right near Trenton. Hello, Tom. Yeah, yeah. good morning. How you doing? Great show. Uh, listen, uh, basically very simple. I'm on the really? outskirts of Trenton, right? Yes, exactly. Okay. I get it. Okay. Okay. Have you ever heard of the term a third world country? <laughs> no, serious. Have you ever heard of that term? Yeah, of course. Have you ever heard of that term? Of course. Okay, yeah. well, that, Trenton is a fourth world country. <laughs> Okay, I'm only telling you the truth. Okay, you could put, you could put a, a a school system there that said like uh, a, a Blossom Flowers University or something. Those people don't want to go to school. They'd rather sell drugs and do other illicit uh, breaking the law uh, things all day, all night. Another thing is, would they go to uh, Obama High School? Now Obama spied on another president running for office. So was that okay to name a school after Obama? Well, so again, the white race doesn't want to go to a school that says Obama because he was a flat-out crook, too. Well, okay, so that's y- is, your characterization, Tom. I, I'm not going to go that far. But the point is, look, you if you don't want to go to a school named for Obama, you know, um, all right, I get it. But who are we to tell the people of Trenton what they should name their schools? Right? I don't know. Don is in Manhattan. Hello, Don. Hi, Frank. How are you doing? I'm hanging in there, Don. Okay, I just want to give you a doomsday scenario. Okay, what I'm going to say is Biden, from all the stress, is not going to finish the term because everything going on. Uh, We're going to have President Harris is going to bungle everything, and then a Republican hawk will be elected, and then it will go to war, and then we're finished. All right. Well, I certainly hope you're wrong, Don, about going to war and we'll be and us being finished. Wesley is in West Virginia, has been on hold for two hours and 18 minutes. All right, Wesley, here's your opportunity to shine. Uh, pinatas. They so, want to beat somebody to get food out of them. Let's send the Russians pinatas. Right. Send the Russians pinatas? Yeah, why not send them some pinatas? My name is Wesley. I'll get right to it. Here's the way things really are, and it was shown in a dream, and I saw this too. Orange, red, in the middle of dark green, only the lower palm leaves on the right side of the valley. The top leaves all dark green. The trunks curved, everyone, and branchless, and weeds under them. They're on the right. It's a full moon with a bronze aura, and it's a starless night. And there's a river in the middle, and it has no wind on it, and it's curved like a letter C. Green grass, 
I did see, written in Psalm 23, that everyone has seen this vision. And on the left, straight trees without branch in a row with a single cluster of bright green leaves on top. Between the river and between the palm trees, closest towards me, a square pit big enough to fit a car. The depth unknown. And in it, no one is dead. No one is whole. And there is sand over their heads, for the pit is not full. There's even a head missing half his mind in the far left corner. Behind it, two little creatures with enormous heads that I suppose only a traffic cone could be worn as a hat. They wore fine black clothes with white pinstripes, and they had sharp teeth and pointing ears, very short, both of them. And they enjoyed what they were doing. The one on the right held a man's leg and cut the foot off, and then the other one lifted its hands and smiled at me like it was fun. Well, I've been double-tongued. I've been double-hearted and double-minded in my life, and I have failed you, Frank, every time I have done that. And whenever I am that way, I fail you, and when I fail you, I fail God, and he is Jesus. The foot cut off. It didn't bleed any blood. And it wore a clean white sock and a fashionable. Wesley, you're aware this is only a four-hour show, right? I'm almost done. And a crooked path of circles made of gold and silver that were rusted, spinning by themselves, not more than four of them in a diagonal row, a zigzag, zigzag. The only sound I heard was their perfectly honed whirring. And the green grass in that dream means everyone saw that vision. And that's what I said. I prayed to Jesus that. I said, I'm an evil man. I don't believe in your forgiveness, Jesus. And you showed me the foot didn't bleed a drop of blood. Would you give everyone during Hanukkah fish and bread? And would you give give them a dreidel? And would you heal teeth in their mouth? And would you, at this time, Jesus, give everyone listening to this show Remove one mole or wart from their body and give them immunity from all corona. And should you see a light emanate from your soul, it is so. So that's the dream, and that's what I've been sent to tell. All right. Thank you, Wesley. Uh, Molly, do me a favor. We need a temporary moratorium on all callers from West Virginia. Uh, Put them in the same category as the South Carolinians. And Matt, we really do need to bring back the Academy Award-themed music for the orchestra for people. I just thought it was so good. I wanted to hear more. Did you? Well, that's. uh, uh, In fact, I commented to Molly. I don't even want to play this guy off. uh, That is uh, very telling about your sensibilities. Personally, I think we should blow out our programming for the rest of the day and just. I thought you were into it. (laughs) You thought incorrectly. (laughs) Jeffrey is in Queens. Hello, Jeffrey. Hello, Frank. Two things real fast. Um, Wouldn't that be um, nice for a change? Oh, this is a different Jeffrey. No, what do you mean? I'm not. I, I'm always quick. No, Frank, no. Wait. I'm saying the previous guy didn't do anything. Oh, oh, oh I, I, of course. Uh, okay. Sneak women with the flat with the uh, Lydia with her shoes. Um, since the '80s, I thought it was everyone. Women, women wore sneakers to the office, and then changed to their to their heels in the office, and then went home and went back to sneakers when they went home. That's from the '80s, Frank. No, uh, so you believe that's what Lydia is doing here, and of that's course. why her shoes are here for 30 years, Frank. That's okay. been the norm. And, okay, a Lionel story. When I moved here back home to take care of Dad in his last five years of his life, I had never heard of Lionel. 
when I moved, to this, I was thrown of the, I was thrown into my father's world, and he, one of his rituals was to enjoy Lionel every night. Yeah, I he's no terrific. Who Lionel was. But it became a thing that I joined in with him, and we did that for the last couple of years of his life. And that's my little Lionel story. All right. Well, thank you. Uh, thank you. That was um, – at least it was shorter than the previous uh, dream that we experienced there. 800-848-WABC. Rocco is in eastern Long Island. Hello, Rocco. Frank, in reference to the Lionel there, you know um – I, I listen to Lionel, and of course I've been listening to you for quite some time. I consider you peers, and uh, I don't know why he would bring uh, Mr. Katsimatidis into the equation if you asked him to come on. And and you would contribute to his program if you went on his, so I find that bizarre. You know, I want to thank you for continuing the Bob Grant, Your Influence Counts, Use It. I love that. I think it's fabulous that you spend time with uh, Carmine. I raised four children, two sons, two daughters, and uh, I commuted and worked all the time, and I never even changed one diaper, and I wish I would have spent more time, but uh, I was a, a good funder there. And in reference to changing names on schools, I think that the community should vote on it, you know, because there, if it upsets people in the community and then they change a name and take down a statue and then all of a sudden people start protesting, you know, after the fact, uh, you know, it makes it unsettling in the community. And thank you for allowing me to talk. Thank you, Rocco. 800-848-WABC. Tom is in the Bronx. Hello, Tom. Hey, Frank, man, you got some tolerance, man. I swear. Hey, look, I want to ask you a question because I really don't know the answer. When Trump was president, what did he actually do, physically do, that we can see? Well, what, what, what do you mean? Well, I mean, what, what do you oh, mean he physically? he made campaign complete the wall. Did he, uh, you know what I'm saying, uh, do something that – because – I don't, people keep saying Trump, Trump, this, but I don't see nothing that he's done. They keep saying Biden is not doing anything. You know, like, did he complete the wall or did he uh, make a school well, or something? Well, again, um, we can uh, well, so I'll give, you, I'll give you a couple, right? So um, no, yeah. number one, as you know, uh, Tom, in a, you know, in, a, in a republic with divided powers, a president is not a dictator, and you do need – a lot of uh, you need Congress for a lot of stuff. I'll give you a couple of the things that I find to be uh, some of his more significant accomplishments. Number one, um, the First Step Act, real criminal justice reform. He was able to get out of prison a lot of the people that uh, President Clinton and Senator Biden put in prison with these draconian prison sentences. That's number one. And the First Step Act does a lot of other good things in terms of training and education for people in prison. That's number one. That's very significant as far as I'm concerned. Number two, uh, some better trade deals. He got us out. There was no if, – if Hillary had gotten elected, we would have gone into the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership. That didn't happen with Trump. Instead, he actually renegotiated NAFTA with the uh, USMCA, which I think was uh, really, really impressive. Additionally, I think some of Trump's greatest accomplishments, believe it or not, are in the area of foreign policy. The Abraham Accords bringing uh, peace between Israel and several Arab adversarial nations. That's a real accomplishment. Or also not starting any wars, as President Bush did, as President Obama did. I think that was significant. And having the 
the the gumption to actually meet with a guy that no president would meet with, Kim Jong-un. But look, I think the one that I'm most grateful for these days is probably Operation Warp Speed, where thanks to the uh, work that his administration did, we saw uh, vaccines for COVID developed in a record amount of time. So, uh, look, there's a lot of things not to like about Trump, about his style and about his politics and his policies. And, you know, I'll be honest, I think his behavior after the election is really unstatesmanlike, to say the least. Uh, But I think even people that don't like Trump, you got to give the devil his due. Okay, I ask you that because... Everybody that's for Trump keeps saying that he would have fixed all these things, all these problems that we have. And, uh, oh, Trump would have fixed that. If Trump was still in office, he'd have handled that. He'd have took it. And, you know, I just wonder, you know, did he do anything when he was in office? Yeah. So, okay, that's that's good. He did do something. But, you know, these people acting like they can read the, the, the past or the future. Right, yeah, exactly. Would have did this, would have did that, would have did Tom, that. You know, come you, on. You, you're exactly right, and there's no way to know, Tom. And thank you yeah. for the call. And that's one of the reasons I've always said, you know what drives me crazy with people is when someone dies for the rest of eternity, you have the people that knew that person. And even sometimes people that didn't know that person always say the same thing. Well, if Freddie were alive today, he would really hate this. And the more famous you are, the more you get that. Like Martin Luther King Every Martin Luther King Day, whatever someone's agenda is, whether it's political, religious, racial, so forth, you have somebody that say, well, if Martin Luther King were alive today, he'd do this. Well, if John F. Kennedy were alive today, he'd be for this. You, you know what? You have no idea what John F. Kennedy would be for and against today because he's dead and he can't tell you. And, I, and, I, and I've asked my wife and my family that. When I die, nobody should ever assume they know what I would have done in a given circumstances. Circumstances because I'm unpredictable. That's that's the truth. When I die, that's it. Don't say, you know, if Frank were here, he would have really uh, he would have voted for X Y Z, or he would have said this, or he would have watched this movie. You don't know what I would have done, and so. Such is the case with people that don't get elected. You don't know what would have happened. I happen to think Trump would have actually been a much better president in his second term than he was his first. But there's no way to know. There's no way to know. All right. Um, we're going to do the $1,000 minute in just a moment. We're going to be the seventh person to call 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-WABC. You can uh, have the opportunity to answer 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds. And then we're going to talk with David Sinclair. He's the founder and CEO of Volta Wireless. We're going to talk about communications coming out of Ukraine. He's actually lived in the Soviet Union and spent a lot of time in Ukraine. And there's this alliance between big tech and government in which they're spying on you. We'll tell you about it. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. Straight ahead. W-A-B-C Frank Morano 77 W-A-B-C There's something bad about to 
might be so sad, might leave my nose running. I just hope she don't wanna leave Dark Red by Steve Lacey. This is The Other Side of Midnight. We're going to talk with David Sinclair in just a minute. And um, I'm eager to talk with him about this Ukraine situation and a lot of things that are happening domestically. But first, it is time for... The Other Side of Midnight presents... It's the $1,000 Minute. Answer 10 questions correctly in one minute, and you could win $1,000. Here's your host... Thank you, Chris Libertini. Let's meet today's contestant, Robert, in Middletown. Hello, Robert. Good morning, sir. Uh, Robert, you've heard this segment before, I imagine. Uh, Yes, I have. Okay, so uh, rules are pretty simple. You answer 10 questions in 60 seconds, you're going to win $1,000. You get a question right, I am just going to move on to the next question so that we can make our way through this. Now, we've had... People win $1,000 twice, and we've had people win smaller prizes as well. The timer's going to start after I ask the first question. Are you ready to go? Sounds good. Let's do it. Name a pizza chain. Pizza Hut. What does a thermometer measure? Temperature. According to the common phrase, something that goes around does what? Comes around. In craps, rolling what number ends your turn? Snake eyes. Unfortunately, I guess you're not a gambler, Robert. It is seven. Seven ends your turn. Ah. Uh, So you're not a craps player, I guess. No, but if you ask my wife, she says I am. (laughs) Okay. Robert, thanks for playing and uh, thanks for listening. And um, if you're ever up for a craps lesson, you know, let me know. Actually, I have a video of me teaching craps. On my Facebook page. People can watch it. Facebook.com slash MoranoFan. Robert, hang on. Stay on hold. Molly's going to take your information and send you something nice. Uh, perhaps she will send you a Volta wireless mobile phone. Something tells me she won't. But uh, we're uh, going. We're joined now by David Sinclair, the founder and CEO of Volta Wireless, and somebody that has uh, spent a great deal of time in some of the areas that we're talking about in Eastern Europe. David, thanks so much for getting up early for us. Thank you very much for having me on, Frank. Well, David, uh, you know, we, we were supposed to talk a couple of weeks ago, and you missed our appearance, and I was wondering whether or not I should hold it against you, but you came such as a highly recommended guest that I chose not to, and I, and I figured, all right, he's kind enough to get up early for us again. Why don't we see how this works out? But what was your issue a couple of weeks ago when you when you missed our appearance? Were you, did you oversleep? Uh, quite frankly, I forgot that I had the interview because I had too many other things going on. I we hear had, you. Uh, I hear you. We had uh, uh, just launched uh, a new offering in our service, our Volta Private Payments platform, and I was doing a ton of interviews up until about midnight, 2 a.m., and thought, okay, this will be fine. I'll take a quick nap and and. Slept right through. I hear you. All right, we won't. We won't. That's okay. We won't hold it against you. We're we're very forgiving on on uh, on this show. All right. Now, um, I want to before we talk about what's happening uh, domestically. You have actually spent a fair amount of time in uh, the Eastern Europe and some of the areas that we've been talking about in the news, right? 
Uh, yes, I have. Yeah, we're, we're... I spent uh, uh, many years uh, in Russia, and then I actually lived uh, for five years in Kiev uh, between 2007 and 2012, uh, and spent the next from 2012 to 2019 living in various uh, countries of uh, the CIS, the former Soviet Union. And what um, what brought you there? Why did you? Why were you living in Russia and in and in Ukraine? I like to joke that unemployment brought me there. I actually have a uh, – my bachelor's degree was in Soviet relations, which I got right as the Soviet Union collapsed. So I quite literally was unemployed and uh, saw that Russia was opening up, and so I bought a plane ticket and flew to Russia and and rented a room with a Russian family and uh, learned uh, Russian language in the morning and and worked in a a local office uh, in the afternoon and over time ended up starting up my own business over there. And then eventually I came back to the States, got my MBA and uh, went back over there to help manage uh, various U.S. companies and businesses uh, in the former Soviet Union. Wow. So I was uh, the, the American that spoke Russian. That, that, that's great. Hey, um, what was your how did you enjoy living in both Russia and in Ukraine? I have to say that I, I really enjoy the people over there. You know, the weather is cold. The people are warm. Um, uh, it, it, you know, forget about the government and the bureaucracy and all that stuff. The day-to-day life be much more difficult at times than living in the U.S. Because you know, U.S. you need anything, you just go to the store, you go online, you order it, you get it. Right? Uh, it's not always the case uh, o- over there. But I think that type of day-to-day hardship makes the people very, very kind to one another. And, and, and frankly, they were kind to me, a foreigner. Well, that's so, nice to hear. Uh, that's nice to hear. Now, you know, I, I, just, just an FYI, I liked it so much that I actually have a wife from Russia. Ah, <laughs> so, very nice. So what, I use my Soviet relations degree every day. <laughs> what's your view and uh, what's your wife's view about what we're seeing here with this uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine? Uh, so I... I, I, I uh, I'm sorry, I know you're a business very, guy. You want everybody yeah. to buy your phone. You can't get, uh, I guess, too political. But, you know, well, I'm no, asking I'll, anyway. I'll, I'll tell you, you know, it's very personal for us because uh, we have still have a lot of friends uh, in Ukraine. Um, you know, I have a lot of colleagues. Uh, I worked for many years in Ukraine. I have a lot of colleagues there. And, and actually, my company, Volta Wireless, today, we have a team based in Kiev, or that was based in Kiev, I should say. Uh, 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 it's a part of our company. Uh, and so... Um, you know, it's it's uh, it's very personal for us. So we're, we're so we're obviously very upset by this. We're in constant communications day to day. Every day, I'm in communications with people in Ukraine and in Russia uh, about what's going on over there. And so it's just it, it's very difficult to, to to watch this as somebody who knows both of the countries, knows people personally in both of the countries. You know, knows their kids, knows their mothers. You know, it, it, it's a very difficult situation to watch, and it's, it's very upsetting. And I. I you know, I, I I don't want to get too political, but I just I just think it's horrible that this whole thing's happening. Well, I can understand that. Now, one of the things that we've seen is when we've talked with people on the radio, um, they are able to call us from Ukraine, from Russia, and we're seeing they're able to tweet or other forms of social media live images and video of some of the war, the war that's happening right in front of them. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about how mobile phones have transformed the way that these wars are reported and how they're perceived by the public and the people fighting them. 
you know, I, I think it's just amazing the way that the mobile phone has transformed the way all news is reported, if you think about it. You know, all of us today can be reporters in an instant. You know, it used to be you would have, you know, Walter Cronkite embedded uh, with the military in, in Vietnam and, you know, he'd shoot some film and and maybe uh, a week or two later it would get out and get get aired and, and stuff like that. You know, in or in uh, World War Two, you know, we have these old World War, World War Two films, but, you know, those may have been shot and it may have been months before they were ever seen by the public. Right. Uh, and now you get people live streaming the events of the war on their Facebook page. It's, it's just incredible. We all see it every day. You know, because of all my connections over there, I flip into any of my social media and it's just flooded with images and videos uh, of things happening there. Uh, you know, it's, it's just amazing uh, the ability. And, and by the way, the ability to communicate with people over there in the instant. You know, you pull up any messaging app and in that moment, you can immediately have communications with somebody in Ukraine or Russia without any issues. Uh, and, you know, it, it's not just the way that the war is being reported. It's also uh, the way the war is being fought that's changed because of mobile phones. Mm. You know, it, 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 if you think about it, uh, there was a the Ukrainian ambassador to the U.N. Uh, recently uh, gave a speech in which he read out text messages between a Russian soldier and his mother in which the Russian soldier was explaining, hey, I, I'm, I'm in Ukraine. I'm, I'm, in the, I'm in the real war here. And he was talking about his experiences there, you know, and, and, and those were intercepted. Um, uh, you know, th this morning uh, there's a news report out that another uh, uh, Russian general was uh, killed along with several senior officers uh, near Kharkiv. And the way that that uh, information got out is because uh, a Russian intelligence officer was calling his boss back in Moscow to tell him what had happened, and the call was intercepted. It was made on a regular uh, phone line, and, and, and when asked, well, what happened? Why aren't you using our secure communications platform? They said, well, the secure communications was knocked out, so we're using uh, a local mobile phone uh, to call you and tell you this. And, of course, the phone call was uh, intercepted uh, by uh, both the U.S. and uh, Ukrainian uh, intelligence organizations. Uh, and so we now know that this, uh, the second or maybe third Russian general has been killed in fighting in Ukraine now. Well, that is uh, really interesting and it makes a lot of sense. I don't think a lot of people would have, would have understood it in those terms, but for you putting, uh, putting it that way, do you think that, um, that this is sort of a the, the the modus operandi for future wars now. Any war that takes place in the future, are we going to be able to see broadcast in real time because of mobile phones, or are we going to see authoritarian regimes like Russia and China continue to clamp down to such an extent that that uh, real time reporting vis a vis the mobile phone is not likely to occur? You know. It, it, Many people have been looking at this question of, of Russia's strategy regarding the telecommunications infrastructure in Ukraine because, you know, it, it wouldn't have been that hard for them to have gone in from the very beginning and just knocked out all the mobile networks, right? Uh, figure out where the core network's located, figure out where the main data centers are, blow them up, uh, you know, uh, destroy the towers. Uh, uh, but what we're discovering is that they're leaving it in place, and, and there's a lot of theories as to why they're leaving it in place. 
one of them being that they expected to take over Ukraine really quickly. And so they figured they could, you know, they didn't want to destroy infrastructure. They were just going to have to come in and rebuild again. Uh, and so um, uh, when uh, now they've got a situation, though, uh, where it's still there and all this reporting is going on. Well, the next theory came out, actually discovered that the Russian secure communication system requires 3G or 4G telecommunications to be available. So they're sending it over the same mobile airwaves that everybody else is. They're just using a, a some sort of secure encryption system to do it. So I think that uh, uh, there are apparently military organizations that uh, use secure communication that's dependent on mobile networks being in place. And so I think, uh, you know, we will see uh, uh, that continue to happen. Now, now that being said, there's there's stories that the Russians are now focused on doing shutdowns of the telco networks in specific areas. So, for example, they're trying to uh, stop all telecommunications in and out of Kharkiv because they're, you know, shelling the heck out of Kharkiv and they don't want that uh, story getting out. Uh, but it's very localized. They're not they're trying not to destroy that network. The other thing to think about is uh, it's very easy to detect a mobile phone signal. And so even as far back as 2014, when Russia first invaded Eastern Ukraine and, and Lugansk and, and those areas, they were their artillery were actually detecting mobile phone signals of the Ukrainian soldiers and using those to set targeting for their artillery fire. And so there's stories about soldiers you know, walked outside of their barracks and turned on their mobile phone and suddenly the shells started falling. You know, so I think I think it's very much changed the way that wars are getting fought, both from a communications perspective as well as in a way to identify the enemy. But I, I think that, you know, like everything, lessons are going to be learned by military forces around the world uh, from what's going on in Ukraine today both in terms of the way that the facts of what's going on are being reported by, by, by the citizens, uh, as well as the weaknesses in using uh, the mobile communications network for your own military communications. And so, uh, you know, lessons will be learned and people will come up with new solutions, I imagine, over time. Yeah, if people just tune in, we're talking with David Sinclair. He's the founder and CEO of Volta Wireless. You had this uh, really interesting op-ed that you wrote on uh, PJ Media in which you refer to big tech as the greatest threat to American freedom. Now, that's saying quite a bit. Why is big tech the greatest threat to American freedom? Well, you know, fundamentally, freedom depends on the ability to think freely, to be able to look at an idea, analyze it, evaluate it, discuss it with people, and, and, and come to your own conclusion about what you think about that idea, right? Um, that's a very difficult thing to do when you don't have any privacy. You know, without privacy, you don't get freedom. And, and, and why do I say you don't have privacy? Well, if you look at it, um, when the internet first started, everybody said, oh, this is gonna democratize access to information. We're gonna have so much more freedom now and everybody's gonna be able to access and share all the same information. So everybody's gonna be much more equal. Uh, and, and that was true early on. Uh, but then as the Internet and mobile technology uh, developed further, particularly as we started getting into 2005 to 2010 and beyond, we began seeing uh, uh, the rise of the big tech companies focused on monitoring everything you were doing on the Internet, everything you're doing on your mobile phone. And, and you know, what we see, you know, we talk about big tech, we're not just talking about 
you know, people think Facebook and Amazon and Google, they forget about the original big tech companies. The original big tech companies are the mobile operators, the telco companies. You know, back when it was still fixed line, it was Ma Bell. They were the big tech companies, and they're still a part of that big tech group today. You know, your mobile operators monitor and keep a record of every single phone call you make or receive, every single text message you make or receive. They're required by law to keep a record of it for five years. They keep track of your location 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You know, they know when you woke up in the morning because probably one of the first things you did this morning was pick up your phone. Uh, you know, it, it's just really scary how much data they know every internet search you, you make and they keep records of this stuff. Right. And, and what do they do with it? Well, they, first of all, they sell it. Of course, they claim that they anonymize it, but if, if you're selling somebody's anonymized records and it includes their location 24 by seven, it doesn't take that much effort to de-anonymize it. Just figuring out you know, where does this guy live? Right. That's public record. Uh, and so, um, uh, they're selling it, of course, but then they're also, in many cases, providing the government access to this. There, there's, there was a, a Supreme Court ruling in 2018 specifying that uh, law enforcement needs certain uh, needs a warrant to get certain types of data, but not all data. Well, now, David, let me let me let me really ask you to let me ask you to follow up on that aspect of this because one of the, I, I'm very concerned about this uh, the government spying on individual citizens, but. Um, one of the things that people that aren't concerned about always say to me and others is, well, look, I've got nothing to hide. Let them check my phone. If monitoring my phone helps them catch a terrorist or a bad actor somewhere, what do I have to lose? Let them do it. I want you to answer that. Why? Why should everyday Americans who aren't breaking any laws, who aren't doing anything wrong, why should they be concerned that their communications are being monitored by this marriage of big tech and big government? So in a world in which the government was made up of altruistic people that were just trying to do the best for society, I would absolutely agree with you. Um, you know, many, unfortunately, the government is made up of human beings and human beings have uh, personalities and they have uh, uh, their own ideas and they have their own agendas. And, and, you know, I I think we've seen too many reports in recent years of even organizations that used to be as highly respected as the FBI. We see that people in those organizations have an agenda and will uh, take information and twist it uh, to their benefit. You know, I think a great example of this, uh, you know, it's an old movie, but it's still one of my favorites, the movie Enemy of the State. Mm. You know, in that movie, they look at the main character, and they look at everything going on in his life and look at how can I twist this to make it seem negative so that people distrust that individual. So when he comes out and starts talking about what he sees going on, nobody will believe him. Because they've already ruined his credibility by taking everything going on in his life, even though he's doing nothing wrong, but they're twisting it in such a way to make it sound negative. But 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 I don't think that's actually the the biggest risk uh, to our freedom. You know, the reason why I don't identify government as the biggest risk to our freedom, I identify big tech, is actually the following. So so the tech companies are collecting the data, but what are they doing with it? That's that's really the important thing here. What they're doing with it. Uh, if you think about the tech company business model, it's driven by engagement. You take Facebook or, or any of these platforms, frankly, 
they're driven by engagement. What's engagement? It's clicks, right? How long do you spend looking at your screen? That's how they sell advertising. And so they can make more money the more eyeballs they've got looking at the screen. How do they drive engagement? Well, you know, TV, the, the year of TV was put out great shows, put out great content that people will watch, right? Uh, in social media and, and, and a lot of these other platforms, they figured out engagement is not driven necessarily just by good content. Mm. It's actually driven by emotion. So if they put out positive stuff, you're going to have a warm and fuzzy feeling and you're going to go off and have a nice, wonderful day. What they're doing, in fact, though, is they realize that negative emotion, uh, right. anger, it drives, it drives, drives similar virality and, and impressions. It's a it's a it's a real shame. David, um, I have to run, but hopefully we can have you back soon and could continue this discussion. We didn't even scratch the surface of uh, the other subjects that I want to chat with you about. Thanks so much for the time. Thank you for having me, Frank. Uh, David Sinclair, he's the founder and CEO of Volta Wireless. Their website is uh, voltawireless.com. It sounds like they're doing some exciting things there. Meantime, if you want to be heard for 15 seconds, now's the time. 15 seconds of fame straight ahead. 800-848-9222. WABC. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano, 77 WABC. This is The Other Side of Midnight, taking you until 5 a.m. Will you get to hear Deb Valentine and the WABC Early News? Oh, it's Frank Diaz today. Deb Valentine is off celebrating uh, her uh, International Women's Day Part 2. So uh, you'll hear Frank Diaz, who is also an interesting fella. All right. Time now for you to be heard at The Other Side of Midnight. This is 15 Seconds of 1-800-848-WABC. Steve is in Ocean County. How you doing, Frank? Uh, under the other guy, people weren't dying. CCs weren't being smeared on people. Rockets weren't being thrown in the air. And gas wasn't $7. Thanks, Frank, for the show. John in Queens. If I fell in love with you, would you promise to be true and help me on this path? 800-848-9222, Omar in the Bronx. Frank, I'm very glad about hearing about David, how the government used our information against us. It was right on the point. Thank you. Roger in Massachusetts. Yes, I don't think the oil from Russia, Saudi Arabia, uh, Iran, or um, or Venezuela is any clean, any cleaner than a North American oil. David in Queens. Christopher Columbus was a disgusting, vulgar human being, and Wilson Wilson was a racist. Now you can't say that. Uh, 800-848-9222. Anthony is in Edison. Hi, uh, yes, good morning. Putin is nothing but a bully and a punk, and who is he to be setting all the rules? I say we go after him and send in tons of grenades and have nice little presents waiting for their troops when they come over the border. Steve in Coney Island. Curtis Lira. <laughs> All right. Uh, the WABC Early News is next. Stay tuned for Bernie and Sid from 6 until 10. I'll be back at 1 a.m. A big show tomorrow. I'll tell you. Frank Morano. Good day.